the stethoscope and mm-hmm. uh, everyone's like, you're one of us. Like Aww. you look just like us. And I'm like, yeah, I'm one of you. Like I have a pulse. I, well, yeah. you know, you might've right. made some decisions that brought By the you down grace of God, road. you yeah. did it. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, but I've made yeah. bad decisions too. And I was like, I just, right. and I just try and help people. That's right. And I'm super real with them too. And I always tell them like, Hey, it didn't take you, you can get here in a day. So you right. can't expect Absolutely. To you know, to achieve that sobriety within a day, nor would you want to. I was mm-hmm. like, because of that struggle and that journey, mm-hmm. that's where your character is built, and that's where it makes you who you are. Yeah, and you, then you're like, oh wow, that was that was terrible. Like I had to go through that. Like I really don't want to don't want to relapse. Right. And if right. you do relapse, it's it's you know, it's not a moral failing. No, it's not like that. I always say, hey, like this is your life, and. You know, you might be right here and you have hopefully the rest of it to redefine yourself. Mm -hmm. So don't let this moment be the moment that captures you and and you can't get out of it. I said, because there's plenty of people that want to see you get out of it. I'm going to give you some fuel for that car. You got to steer it. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like, you're going to hit potholes. I was like, you might wreck the thing. I said, we might have to get another car. And I said, but keep coming back and get on that steering wheel and keep going. Yeah, I I don't know if I should start talking because well yeah it's, it's I'm recording because, I'm gonna leave that oh, in because I did right so what you were saying when, um real quick okay so we're gonna start we okay. actually already did yeah, he so wants to, he wants to introduce everyone yeah real, yeah <laughs> before nice. we before we get too far into the weeds um okay. Lisa thank you for coming back thank you Rosie thank you for being on thank you um excited for this um and I wanted to get to it before I forget about it and. Um, so last time Lisa was on, you just recently got your pro card, Mm -hmm. right? And then I saw in between then you started doing, um, an article for her. So just give us just a little bit of that because I just I don't want to forget about because I feel like we're going to get into <laughs> oh, it and it's right. going to no, no you know problem. four yeah. hours later we're going to oh, right. but I definitely wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of put that out there. Yeah, it's for um, stsfit.com and it's um, like an inclusive. They have um, and all the supplements you want to buy are on there. Protein powders, all your you know vitamins and all those things, and then also um, tons of training videos and tips and articles, um, and then uh, different experts from um, all kind of corners of fitness, and I'm doing the women's corner, so it's, awesome. it's exciting. Yeah, yeah, very fun. Has that started? Is it coming? Is it like Yeah, a- so we've done, um, so January, February is out now, so. Awesome. Yeah. So check that out on check it it sts.com or? stsfit.com, yep. Awesome, fantastic. Yeah. Well, that's, so, that's exciting. Very exciting, yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, I just wanted to make sure Thank to get you. that before yeah, I forgot. it is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tony, might grab me. I forgot to grab a water. Can you grab me one too? Yeah. Right. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Um, so, Rosie, why don't you just? I'm just gonna let you just, you know, tell your your story. Obviously, there's you know specific reasons why you know Lisa and you know has kind of brought you here, but mm-hmm. um, just so people can kind of get a background of, of kind of who you are and what you do, and um, then you know we can go from there. Okay. So. Um, so I lost my oldest son in May of 2016 to an opiate overdose. Um, he had struggled with addiction for six long years. Um, and back then, you know, I think, wow, I didn't realize it is a long-term recovery plan. It is a medical disease of the brain. It's a chronic disease. Um, and I think back to how much ignorance was out there then and how much ignorance is still out there now and the stigma. But um, Tommy was an awesome person. 
He still is an awesome person. Uh, he graduated from college. He was an MMA champion. He was a successful businessman. He was a wonderful friend, a great brother, um, tremendous son, tremendous person. Tommy was defined by his heart. He loved people more than himself. And I say this when I speak in rehabs, I have never met someone who suffers with the disease of addiction, no matter where they are in their journey, that doesn't have a heart bigger than themselves. I do believe that that kind of sets people up when they feel deeper, when stress gets to them more. Um, but anyways, Tommy had this disease, you know, what began as a poor choice. And I will say to anyone, it began as a poor choice, a misdirected, immature thing that got out of hand, became a chronic relapsing disease of the brain within a short time. Um, the first time that we knew Tommy had a problem, he had been given Xanax from his uh, primary physician for some problems that were going on at home. Um, my husband and I, ex-husband and I were getting separated divorce that broke my oldest son, you know, being a uh, oldest son of a strong Catholic family. Um, so he, the, his physician had given him a prescription for Xanax and I am a pharmacist. So he had, you know, told me about it. And I said, Tommy, you know, no drug out there really can solve our problems. I said, it might make you feel okay for a moment, but when that drug wears off, you still have to face what we're facing. And I said, you know, we will get through this. We all have struggles, but you need to talk about it. You need to work through that. But my son always was the fixer and he, he could solve anything. You know, school was tough for him, but he still graduated with a business degree. He wanted to be an MMA fighter. He only, not only was that, but he was eight and oh, he was a champion. You know, he just had that, I can, you know, my way I can do it. And he never wanted to look weak or he didn't want to look like he, he wanted to be there for us, even though as a family, um, we were all getting through it. I mean, I had to go back to work full time and, you know, we weren't depending on him, but he took that on, right? So this Xanax, you know, he started, and I, I know, don't get me wrong, before this, he probably was partying and thinking he had it under control. And how old was he at this time? Um, so he would have been in his last year, like 21, 22. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so he gets this pres prescription for Xanax. And um, the first sign that we knew that he had a problem was he was in a car accident early in the morning. He was under the influence of Xanax. Um, and, you know, I remember distinctly sitting with him on the couch and saying, Tommy, you know, what's going on? And he said, Mom, this doesn't define me. This isn't who I am. It got out of here. I can, you know, I'm going to get this under control. And I can remember thinking, I love him so much, and we're going to get through this, and we're going to do what we need to do. Okay, so he went to a court-ordered outpatient rehab in Laurelwood, and he got through that, and, you know, that was great. I had no idea back then that just like any disease, you know, I have hypertension, so if I don't take my medicine, if I don't exercise, if I don't keep my stress under control, if I don't deal with it each and every day, whether I fail or I don't, that disease is going to take over, right? We have to manage it. I had no idea back then that that's what Tommy needed to do. So maybe Tommy started, you know, experimenting when he was 15, 16, drinking or whatever. School was tough for him or, you know, coping in, in different ways, using substances. At that moment, Tommy's actual maturity of his brain is going to halt.
because now we're not learning coping skills. We're not learning how to deal with different things, right? We're self-medicating and we are numbing it. If we, you know, have a great soccer season and we're all out, you know, drinking and it's the greatest thing and we're celebrating, that's our happiness. If I don't do so good on a test and I already have this low self-esteem about not doing well in school, I smoke a joint or something like that, then I don't have to feel that. So as somebody keeps maturing, he's not really maturing because he's coping in different ways, right? And, and I, you know, again, you don't, you know, we go through life, we do our, you know, make our best. And I can remember, you know, thinking he was my edgy child, but he's going to grow through this. He's going to mature because men's brains mature completely by 27. Women are 25. And once Tommy started down that road, I can remember people saying to me, you know, you just have to pray he gets to 30 because there would be a natural growth in the brain, right? But Tommy didn't make that. So, but back to my story. So anyways. um, Just real quick. um, You know, I think you made an important point and I don't, I've talked about this before on on the Mm -hmm. podcast and and I don't say this to be antagonistic or anything Mm -hmm. by any means. Um, But I think a lot of people, um, myself included, have a difficult time with the word disease as an adjective Mm -hmm. for addiction. and, you know, I know, Lisa, we've kind of talked, I think it might have been after the podcast was over the last time. And I said, you know, I, I feel that I can understand, you know, that, that piece of it, because I have a, an addictive personality, mm-hmm. and, you know, and I have, I, and I kind of, I'm inclined towards that spectrum. Um, but there's also a, a lot of, a lot of people out there that have issue with the, the word disease for something like that, because you, and you, and you said it, and I was, and it's, it was started off with a bad decision. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so for somebody like me that has, you know, trouble, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I have a problem with it. Cause I, I, I do understand that, um, Tony's kind of helped me on this, you know, with his background about, you know, how there are, you know, chemical changes mm-hmm. you know, in the brain. Um, but you know, and I've brought it up too, that, um, we've talked about it before, so whatever. Um, my wife has type one diabetes and she's had it since she was a little kid, mm-hmm. you know, and you look at, you know, the communication of the, the language that we use. I don't know if it's just a problem that I have, but it's people kind of lose the ideas of, of what certain words mean or, you know, different people mean different things and the communication kind of gets lost there. So, you know, for somebody like me that has that, all right, well, you know, a, a child that has cancer or something like that didn't choose that. Mm-hmm. So w- how do you, you know, have that discussion with those people that, you know, have a struggle with the, um, you know, the person that makes those decisions, mm-hmm. obviously they've made the decision, but after that, they're, they're still, you know, like you said, they're still a human being. They still have all of these things and they still at this point now, like how, well, how do you see that? Okay. Kind of, so, I say this all the time, I get asked this from parents, you know, or people with loved ones. You have to remember, when I say it's a disease, there is damage in the brain. If you started using opiates today, within three weeks, you will develop receptors that will drive and direct you. You won't be able to make good decisions. If I stopped, say I was using opiates and I stopped, it's an average of nine months before that brain circuitry that helps make right decisions and control, all that is back into place. Nine months. 
what do you normally see with rehabs? You see four to six weeks if you can get right. that. Okay. And then people don't want to hear long-term recovery. Um, I do talks for Case Western Reserve to their Graduate School of Public Health. And the new standard for treatment of addiction is 14 weeks in a rehab and then one and a half to two years in a supportive environment where there is those people around you. And I really have come to understand the reason being is so that your brain has time to heal. When I talk to parents or I talk to family or even when I'm in a rehab and these people write out a detox and they look at me and just, they don't, no one wants to be addicted, okay? And the stigma that they have to fight to just get the help that they need and to accept themselves where they are at. These people that are sitting there have two broken legs, let's say. Oh my goodness, the family would be right there. They would get them into treatment. They would put them in casts. They would slowly recover those legs, right? And if they made a wrong choice and thought, oh, I can go play basketball and that leg gets hurt again, we would not stigmatize them. That was a wrong choice, correct? But we would get them back on the road to get this under control. So it, it is a disease in the fact that the brokenness which people cannot see and don't want to see, just like with mental illness, is in the brain. You can't see it, so I can stigmatize, I can judge. It is a disease. What starts as a choice, just like if I started smoking tomorrow and I keep using it as a behavior, you know, I'm stressed, I'm hung, you know, whatever, I eventually could develop cancer, okay? And, and I understand there's a big problem with that because people think, well, it was a choice, and now they're still making the choice. They are not making the choice. The disease is directing them. And that's what we have to understand as a society. I was asking Tommy to go run a marathon, and he had those two broken legs. There was not enough time to heal it, and it's not fair. And that's where I feel that we as a society are failing these people terribly and failing those families. You become so beaten down yourself that you think, just get it. What's wrong with you? Tommy wouldn't go to rehab again before he passed. He said, Mom, I know what they're going to tell me. I got this. He detoxed himself. He put himself in a sober living. But the stigma of going back to rehab, and he didn't see it as a positive, right? He ended up overdosing and dying. When I have these people in these rehabs, and after I talk, and their families come up and they'll whisper in my ear, you know, this is their fifth time. God bless them for making it five times. It is an average of eight times in a rehab that a person can get to long-term sobriety and then still needs that recovery living and all that along with it to keep them focused. Rehab and getting help for this is not a negative. It is not. And as he, you know, we were talking earlier about that journey, right? Yeah, yeah. I definitely think uh, I had heard this from someone else, and I use it every time I talk. Your life and my life is just a big puzzle. And when you have the disease of addiction, your puzzle's completely broken, okay? You have one piece left because, you know, God bless you. Maybe you got Narcan. Maybe you're still living, okay? That one piece of that puzzle. And you hope and you pray that he has, that person has the support system to get them into a detox and rehab, right? But remember, you're dealing with someone that their brain is fired up, right? And those, those receptors are telling them, you got this. They're crazy. You don't need this. 
you can, you're fine. But if you can get them into the detox and you can get them where they're at least a little bit clear, they're not completely clear because how long is it going to take? An average of nine months. Okay. Get them a little clear and you can say, so now they've done the detox. So now that puzzle piece has two pieces connected, right? By the grace of God, you can convince them to stay. And maybe we can get a rehab out of them, right? A course of rehab, 10 weeks, whatever. Now we've got two pieces. And maybe they connect with somebody in the rehabs, maybe their roommate, maybe a counselor. They'll take maybe one thing that somebody says, and they'll get those pieces together. And then now they're not going to go to sober living. They want to get back to their life. Because at three weeks of your rehab, that emotional detox kicks in. I'm not like this. I can do this. I want to get back to my life. I have a job because of the stigma. Tommy never wanted to be known as that person with addiction, right? It was a moral failing. So that emotional detox maybe drives that person to say, I'm not going to sober living. I got this because the disease tells them, oh, you got it. Don't you worry, right? And then what happens? Something that's inherent to the disease, relapse. When a relapse happens, now my puzzle that I work so hard to get those five pieces is now back down to one. Now we might have to face criminal charges. Or and now the family's like going to play the hard nose and, oh, that's it. You, you, this is your choice. You just have to want it. What's wrong with you? Well, what's wrong with that person is that brain is not right and they don't realize it. So then now that person only has that piece again and we start again. What I try to tell people when I, in the rehabs and, and when they ask for my advice, that is not a negative because you know what? We're all just a piece. And our lives are what we do with them. And as you work through that rehab and you keep building yourself, there is a purpose. Don't waste time beating yourself up and don't waste time what the world says. But it's very difficult being a family member or being seeing what happens to these poor people that are stigmatized. It's very hard to get them to wrap their heads around it because there is so much stigma that it is a disease. I mean, that it is a choice, not a disease. Right. Sorry, no. I kind of went off there. No, you know, you're fine. I, it brings me to, you know, another thing too. You mentioned the, you know, the criminal system too. Mm. Um, do you think, you know, how much, it just seems to me like we're, we're just missing so much of this, this piece of, you know, what addiction is and, mm-hmm. you know, all of these things that there's so many things that feed into it, you know, whether it be, all right, you know, the choice has been made. Mm-hmm. So we'll push that aside. It's mm-hmm. we're on this path, um, you know, whether it be the the criminal system, because obviously once you get into the criminal system, you know, it's hard to get out of that too. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, I think we've talked about it. You know, whether it be, you know, the criminalization of of certain drugs, this that whatever, mm-hmm. it almost makes it easier to get trapped by it. Yes. So you know that, and I've heard um, I've heard discussions too about different you know rehab programs where it's kind of like the the jail system where they're not really, you know, some of the rehab programs are not, and you, obviously I don't know that much about it. So you can tell mm-hmm. me what you think about that, mm-hmm. this, but, um, you know, some of them, they don't, they're not really in it to help the people or to reform the people. They're just, well, there's a quick buck here. We can make some money. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like you add all those things together and we don't have a system to deal with, you know, one mental illness on any type mm-hmm. of level. And mm-hmm. two, like, I feel like, you know, like you said, the addiction thing where it's, you know, so many people look at it as it's just a choice and that's it. Mm-hmm. But 
it seems much deeper than that. Oh, it's much you know. deeper. And 70% of people that have addiction have concurrent mental illness. My son did not, okay, but that doesn't matter. It is, you know, so let's say, you know, you had epilepsy, <clears throat> excuse me, and you wrecked your car because you had a seizure because you weren't taking your meds. You know, what would happen? Would you be thrown in jail? No, you would be dealt with. We would try to get you back, you know, get your meds or and get you more in a stable thing. I understand people, you know, when they're a danger and all that, but the judicial system is extremely broken. Um, there are drug cart or drug courts now that are doing tremendous things, holding them accountable, getting them things. But we have to do more. Um, when Tommy's, when after he passed, there was a trial, and this would have been back in like 2017, of the person who had left my son. Do, do you want me to tell that story? Yeah, no, okay. yeah, sorry. We, we, okay. I, I, I'm really good at going down like deep rabbit holes before okay. you ever get your story no, out, so I okay. apologize. Okay, so, yeah, well, so to make I a long mean, story short, okay, so when my son passed, he had like been in rehabs a couple times and he was a successful person. Like he wasn't like, I think people think, oh, you know, they're all in the gutter. No, no, you know, this is something that they try to, to fight and it doesn't define them. You know, that it does not define them. So anyway, so the last struggle of Tommy's life, he had come home and said, Mom, I, I, I can't live like this. I want to get my life back. And I said, well, let's see, you know, let's go to, you know, to rehab. But even back then, I didn't understand the importance of the puzzle and the rehab and all that. And he's like, no, I'm not, Mom, I know what they're going to tell me, blah, blah, blah. He goes, I am going to get it out of my system. So he spent 10 days detoxing at my house, which if anyone knows about detox of opiates, it's horrendous. Um, and But he did it because Tommy was strong. Tommy did not want to be addicted because no one does. Um, so he fought through that, right? And he said, I'm going to go back to the sober house, you know, where I lived before, and I'm going to get this under control. And I'm like, okay, Tommy. So he went back and so 21 days into his sobriety after he had been living at the sober house you know running the morning meetings hang you know being with the guys and everything he went to the gym to work out well again you know triggers can be anything and the gym was a trigger for him and he used xanax and then he went right to the next level and he used to say to me mom when I use one thing, if I mess up and I use one thing, and not to say you can compare it to me and, and candy, but if I have one piece of chocolate, I just want the next piece. I just, you know, and, and, and you can't, I couldn't control it. So, but with, with addiction, he said, Mom, as soon as I use that one thing, it just go to the next level. You can, this one time, you're, you know, you got this, you know, and, and he said, I, I, I lose it. So why was that his trigger for somebody who was such an elite athlete? Uh, you know what, I think that there was maybe some passing of drugs at the gym, you know what okay. I mean? Yeah, and when he was, you know, doing the fighting and stuff like that, I mean, I, I know there was great parties afterwards mm -hmm. and everything, and I'm not saying that has to do with it, but it, it fed to it that. It fed into that. Yeah, them. when Tommy was a star and he couldn't handle that, and yeah, pe but. Pe people, places, things. Usually you get one and then there's another one, and those are the elements mm -hmm. that lead to the, to the mm -hmm. triggers. Right. So anyway, so he, he uses and he's out of, you know, okay, so now he's, he, another problem is you can't stay at the sober house. And I get that, you know, this is a community of people working on that. However, where do these people go? Right. And so they sat down and it was a one, you know, wonderful place that he stayed at. And they sat down and they talked to him. They had me on the phone and they're like, Tommy, you need to go back to rehab. But to Tommy going back to rehab and when his mind is fired up, I'm not, I got this, you know, and I could hear it in his voice. And he said, mom, 
don't worry, don't worry, I got this. And I'm like, he goes, I'm going to go stay with some of the guys. I'm going to get this out of my system. And then I'm going to come back here, mom. Don't, don't worry. Love you, mom. That was my last conversation with him. And, you know, unfortunately, the disease won. He connected with someone else that he used to use with um, that three years prior to this one time they were using and this other young man died of, you know, overdosed and Tommy saved his life. Um, fast forward to three years later, Tommy's not going to call a sponsor. Tommy's not going to reach out, you know, his good friends. Did they, re nobody really understood, you know, he had gotten to the point where he felt he was a loser. Do you know what I mean? His self-esteem, everything. So he calls the guy that he uses with because that's what the disease tells him. And so they party and they get something with fentanyl on it and they both overdose. So when they both overdosed, um, you know, now as a parent, I will share that all through his addiction, I always had my phone with me because I just never knew. And one thing that Tommy told me, and I will always remember this, he said, Mom, the disease of addiction does not take me around good people. The disease of addiction takes me around the evil of the world, people that don't really care. And that really bothered my son because he was all about helping other people. And I cry when I think about the women and what they have to go through. You know, nobody was going to mess with my six foot five, 240 MMA fighter. But, you know, he would say that to me. And it's ironic that how he died was the epitome of evil. So they both overdosed and Tommy felt like kind of went down a flight of steps because, you know, when you get fentanyl on something, it's like a big black wall comes over you. So I don't hear from my son. I'm at work. I'm looking on my phone because remember, my phone's always charged. You know, I'm trying to live life, you know, not having it like him. But, you know, as a as a mother, all you want to do is save your child. You know what I mean? And I really didn't talk a lot about it then. Now I never shut up about addiction. But I didn't talk about it a lot then because I didn't have the energy. So I don't can't find him and, and what's going on. And the other young man's mother couldn't reach her son either. So she called her ex-husband to go check on him. He had an apartment in um, Tremont. So this father goes over to check the apartment. Now it's been like two days and I haven't reached Tommy. And, and his phone's not working. So I'm like, is he in the hospital? Because there are only three things that will happen with the disease of addiction. You will get help whether it's the first time, the eighth time, whatever, you'll get back on that track. You will be arrested. Hopefully you can get to a jail that has a rehab program or whatever, or you can go through drug court. Or the last thing is that you're going to die. And that's a tremendous burden that families carry. Mm -hmm. You live with that every day, right? So this father goes over, unlocks the door, and my son's at the bottom of the steps. He steps over my son to find his son. His son is overdosed on a couch upstairs. He gets one of his buddies to come over and they take his son down the steps. They walk over my son, put their son in the car, don't call 911, which would have been the smartest thing to do, and they shut the door and lock it. And then they go to the Cleveland Clinic for 36 hours while their son is in ICU um, seizing and, and all that, which, you know, I, I understand that, but I, he never called 911. So then... 36 hours later, now they go back to the apartment. And by the grace of God, by this point, Tommy had passed. They moved my son's body, dragged him across a gravel parking lot, put him in the passenger side of his car, took his cell phone and his wallet, and parked him outside Tremont Elementary School. 
the next morning, a mailman found my son. That is pretty evil. <laughs> now, even though we're doing this podcast, if God forbid my best friend here stopped breathing, I'd whip these things off and I'd try and help her because that's what my soul tells me to do, correct? But that didn't happen. And, you know, one of the things that I am very, very happy with is that I never really got angry. I immediately turned to my faith. I knew that God had a plan. And if this was the way my son was to finish his life here on earth, then this is the way it was to be. Um, I spent 15 months going down to Cleveland to talk to the prosecutor and the narcotics detective and dealing with this, trying to figure out what had happened to my son and everything. And, you know, this man eventually admitted to it. And, you know, all they kept telling me down, you know, with the prosecutors, Rose, you have to understand, there is no law that says you have to help someone. And he may not get jail time. You know, and I said, you know what, whatever, he has to answer for this, just like we all answer for our lives. I mean, you have to answer every day when you go to bed. Were you a good person? Were you kind? Did you care about others? Or were you selfish and only thought about what you wanted, right? That's not, I'm not here to, to, to decide that for him. However, I said to them, I need to be there so I can talk to that judge. Because there was that mother who had been stigmatized for six years. And I wanted someone to hear my son's voice. So 15 months go by, we have the court date. And the narcotics detective was so adamant about being there and he had never met Tommy but through his interview processes and fun because he was a wonderful young man of course <laughs> everyone's a wonderful human being you know it's it's us that judge them right he said well I want to be there so he was there and he talked on about Tommy and he just said to the judge he said you know judge all this man had to do was call 911 he didn't then the prosecutor talked and then I you know they had said the mother would like to talk so I have this huge picture of Tommy that I take with me every time I talk. And that was probably the first time I took it anywhere. It's awkward and it's big and he's so handsome, he, you know, but it reminds me of him, right? So I get up there and, um, you know, the judge is like, yes, you know, and I said, sir, I said, you need to do something for me. And he like took his glasses off and, you know, I'm always intimidated by court, you know, it don't look good in black and white or orange, but I always think I'm going to overstep my bounds, right? And I said, sir, you're going to need to do something for me. And he said, yes. And I said, the next time somebody comes in your courtroom that is one of these people that is higher up on this drug chain of operations that can, and back then you could buy a brick of fentanyl for $3,000 on the computer and then you could disperse it amongst 10 gangs in Cleveland and make millions, right? So back then, that's what was available. So again, this was 2017. I said, the next time that person that can orchestrate that and comes in front of you, you need to put them away and punish them for what they're doing because that is killing a generation. But sir, the next time someone comes through here like my son, who is... A person trying to get to recovery and stay there and maybe has messed up once or twice or, or what it doesn't define him but that person needs to be offered and back then there weren't drug courts now there are right rehab and help when we put them in jail all we do is it continues the process we throw them away it just makes them feel worse that doesn't get them the help that they need and I said please please 
offer them help and, and let them begin to get their lives turned around. So then I sat down and, you know, at the end, the man ended up having to go to county jail for a couple months, but that was because he, he set himself up. He was yelling and, you know, it was his own doing, you know, and to be honest with you, when that man was in jail, I prayed extra hard for his son, who was just as sick as my son and had no one. So say that young man had a moment of clarity and wanted to get help. Who were they going to call? Friends have done, people are done, nobody understands. His father was his only hope, at, you know, even though his father, I thought, was a little bit goofy, obviously. But um, so the father was sentenced, and, you know, at the end, the judge said, and you, Rose, please stand. Oh, no, here we go now, you know. And I, I stood up, and uh, he said, you know, I want you to know something, that I did hear what you said. And he said, and I do try to do what you're asking of me. He said, however that same person will come in front of me two months later. And only by, I guess, the grace of God, I had the words to say, and I looked right at him and I said, Sir, that's where your understanding of the chronic relapsing disease of the brain, your compassion, your understanding, and your duty must come into play because that person deserves another chance. This is not a moral failing. This is someone who is suffering. And he said, thank you. And, you know, as hard as that was, I was grateful to be able to do that. But so that was the worst part of losing my son. But whenever I talk, and so I'm talking now, I will always tell what happened the day that he died. So I would like to share that story. So for three days now, I have this phone charged, you know, always on me. Nervous wreck. Don't know what to do. But I'm praying because... My faith has sustained me. Um, many times I've had struggles or disappointments, but I've never felt abandoned. I, I've found my inner peace, my inner strength, always with my faith. So I'm praying, and I'm at work. It's a Friday night. No one is there. And I'm like, Lord, please just keep him safe, hoping that I'm going to get that call. Right? I've been through this many a times, many a times. Um, and it was quiet. And, you know, I'm in this huge office by myself, and I hear, Ma, I'm okay. Well, now I'm losing it, right? Now I love my son so much, and I miss him so much, and I'm worried sick, and I'm a mom, and I'm hearing his voice now. But I knew that I'm not crazy. I know I'm not on any kind of hallucinogenics. And so I kept praying again, and then just as he would when he was at home and if he was in another side of the house and I was cooking for him or something, he'd get louder. Ma, I'm okay. And I thought, oh my gosh, somebody scanned him in because you have to have a scan where I work. You can't, it's a, you know, and he had come to visit me and I thought, well, how could he get it? No one's even here. So I get up from my desk because I'm like, I got to find him. You know, he's here. I'm like, I have this joy, right? I'm Tommy and I'm, I'm running towards that voice and I'm stopped and I'm stopped by him, by his face, as big as the wall, just his face, and all around him, and I will never be able to tell you what beauty I saw. Um, it definitely was heaven. It was lights and whiteness and beauty beyond words. And he was in the middle of it, and all it was was his head as big as the wall, and he was smiling, and there was peace, and there was so much love on his face and he waited until my eyes met his eyes and he said mom i'm okay and i screamed and i said tommy and i ran to try and 
envelop, oh, envelop him, and he went up. And I knew at that moment that he had passed, and I knew that he was in heaven. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for that for two reasons. One, Tommy's faith and his ability to keep trying because he knew he was worth it and he was loved, which we all want. I don't care if you're six, you're 16, you're 50, you're 80. Everybody wants to be accepted for who they are, no matter what struggles they have. But his faith maintained his strength. And I'm so grateful for that. And it was such a joy. And I know people say all the time, how come you got that? And you know, I don't know why. And I suppose there are people out there that think I'm a little crazy and they don't believe me, but I know what I know. And I feel so blessed. But I feel blessed because I know that I can share that story. And anytime I talk, I do share that story because I think we all need miracles. We all need to know that there is a purpose, right? But the second thing that I'm grateful for was I was able to see my son so happy, so loved, my Tommy. That disease had taken that from him. And it had been six long years that I didn't see that. So now I know he's good. And, you know, yes, I miss him, but it really taught me that everyone's life has a purpose. I am still trying to figure out what my purpose is, but we have to keep trying. But that moment changed my life forever. And that's why I continue to do what I do because nobody heard Tommy's voice, but through me, they can hear Tommy's voice. And every time I meet someone, and I have met thousands of people in recovery or in different form, you know, or counselors, they need a voice. They deserve a voice. And so most of my journey since then has been to fight the stigma. So I just wanted to get that out there. <laughs> no, it was fantastic. Um, you know what? And I'm, I'd be the last person that's going to call you crazy. Um, you know, <laughs> I think there's a lot of things in this world that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, whatever it may be, I, th I think mm -hmm. that, you know, I've said it a ton of times that, you know, the experts on whatever it is have mm -hmm. always been wrong mm -hmm. because they were just the experts at that time until mm -hmm. we learned more. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a pretty mind blowing story, um, mm -hmm. with the whole, the, that whole scenario, but, um, kind of going back to the meeting with the judge mm -hmm. and, you know, the repercussions on, you know, maybe the people that are actually creating the issue mm -hmm. um, and not the people that are um, affected by it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I understand that. I, I think most people would agree that if somebody does something that, you know, severely affects another person's life, you know, would be their, their safety or their health. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's certain things that we can't get around mm -hmm. what, you know, that we should be accountable for. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I am totally agreeing with you that, you know, just because this person is, you know, doing something that we'd see, as a, as a negative thing as a society, you know, whether it be drug use, addiction, you know, why are we punishing somebody that gets caught in that loop? You know, it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't, it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't make any sense. And like we've you know, mentioned earlier, putting them into the criminal justice system isn't going to help them out at all. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any way we can, you know, kind of change, you know, along with the stigma and, you know, we'll, is there anything specific that you've been doing or any, like, how, how do you think we can change that and kind of reroute how we deal with, with those issues? So I want to share a story. Lisa, a story? Yeah, yeah. Lisa and I both know this one person. And then I, I want to 
go back to that because that's education part. That's the understanding. And as much as I talk in rehabs, I welcome any time I can go into a community and talk and explain because they somehow listen to me a little bit better, maybe because I don't have that look or they don't expect me to be a mother of someone, you know, because I'm a pharmacist. I don't know. But until we as a society are educated and not ignorant and start really realizing what we're dealing with, we're not going to win. I mean, I have been at, you know, at conferences where they have all these opportunities and, you know, different, you know, organizations and everything like that. And they're all great and they're all doing wonderful things. But then, you know, I got up to talk and and I had to say, until the stigma is addressed, we're not going to get anywhere. We're not, it's, you can see it in people's face, not my child, not my loved one. I don't want to say, yet one out of three people are touched by the disease of addiction. So it's, you know, when I'm in a community, I know there are people Mm -hmm. sitting there that have it, but they don't want to talk about it. And that is such a a problem because if the sooner you get someone into some type of rehab, some type of heal, the better off we are. You know, the more damage, the longer it goes on. You know, they had told me at university hospitals that Tommy wasn't a, a, a day-to-day user but it was like up and down up and down but the level of the the um opiates that he had used would require his brain two years of complete sobriety to get a chance to have a chance well again you know two years my son after one thing of rehab i got this i you know because he was embarrassed and i also didn't have that understanding but the story i want to uh, tell you about is um lisa and i had gone to a sober living house in niles for women And, you know, they have their own journey with the women, children, you know, a lot of times they're prostituted, there are many problems. And it it breaks my heart, because I remember Tommy saying, this disease doesn't take you around good people, it takes you around the evilness. And um, two things, I had been, you know, when I go to the rehabs, a lot of times we'll talk with the counselors, and I have a friend that um, works at one of them that's the intake, you know, intake person and Lisa and I were talking to him one day and you know asked about the female type thing and how that works and he says you know we see it over and over again you know they get there's actual you know they'll start using and then they go to something heavier and then they have to get the drugs and sometimes the gangs will have them rape so that they're so traumatized that they never want to come off of the drug they're going to continue to use and that that's huge trauma that would need to be worked through right but they never get the chance and you know they'll come to rehabs they'll get them through the detox and then as soon as their brain starts thinking clearly it comes back and they got to use and they leave you know and it's just a revolving door but anyways we had gone to this sober living in niles and was what uh the house manager there was someone who had had an addiction problem and had um, a daughter who had an addiction problem, and she was had turned her you know life around. She was working at her sobriety. She I think had maybe a year sober. She was the manager at the sober house, and her daughter was still using, and her daughter overdosed. So I remember reaching out to her, but she made it through that. That was a huge you know she made it through the death of her yeah, daughter. Yeah, so and we thought that right. was I thought oh my god she's going to relapse you know because that's the greatest stress anyone can go through is the loss of a child. Second is the loss of a a spouse, but a child, it's huge. So she made it through there and they're so grateful, you know, and everything. And I kept, you know, I knew someone that kind of oversaw the house and I kept, how's she doing? Oh, she's doing good and everything like that. Well, come to be, she had to, she had like a court case that was hanging over her. I don't know the story or whatever, but the point was she had to go back to the court back in Pennsylvania. Right. So, 
um, it got postponed after Christmas. And then when, when she went back and she had letters of recommendation that she, well, she had turned her life around, she had done all this, right? They felt the need to put her in prison for two years for whatever it was, you know. It was a, she during an overdose. Oh, that's right. She oh, assaulted she the assault. medic. But again, if you were having an epileptic seizure right. and your hand flailed right. and you broke the medic's right. nose, you would never be prosecuted for that. Right. And she apologized. And you're right. I apologize. That, yeah. That's the truth. And so they decided that she needed to pay for that. And so she was so now she was in prison for two years. That doesn't seem right to me after she had proved, don't get me wrong, I, she, you know, but she wasn't the diseases who hit the medic. The, you know, when you give somebody Narcan and you bring them out of a, a overdose, they're You're wild. out of your mind. Oh, yeah. You're out of your mind. So why, you know, and it wasn't that she, you know, she was, you know, sorry she felt, but she had turned her life around. So I, I think every case is different, but you definitely have to look at where they've come and it's very difficult to have a year of sobriety mm -hmm. in young men that have opiate addiction one out, at, from at 20 one out of 10 of them are going to get it if they're between 20 and 30 one out of 10 are really going to get to one year of sobriety one out of 10 that's you know what i mean it is hard to make it you know so i i think again we go back to what you were saying you know where how could we change these things Changing these things is through education. We need to be better educated. We need to stop putting our heads in the ground. We need to start realizing what is necessary for a person to get to long-term recovery and put put it out there. And so that when a person, you know, these young families, you, you, you know, if you go to a rehab, you think, okay, you know, six weeks if you can fight with the insurance. But never was it said to me, and I think it's changed now, but it shouldn't be an option. It should be you're in rehab, the next step is sober living. And and that support until you can really think on your own. But again, who's going to pay for it? I mean, I have people all the time, they need grants, you know, they don't have insurance coverage, things like that. And you know, that is a, a big part of the puzzle. What do you think it's all tied into? I mean, going back to the, the criminal justice system, like the mm -hmm. prisons that are run, you know, mm -hmm. putting it, you know, that lady in jail for if those are the but that's what happened. You know, it kind of it kind of all ties into. I was listening to a conversation between um, with a, a UFC um, referee, and kind of the same thing where he said, you know, when these fighters get knocked out, I just listened to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. when, when when they come, you to, better get out of the way. Yeah, yeah like cause... we have to make sure that when they come to that, you know, we're safe because they're going to come back and they're going to come back swinging because they just right come right. out of nowhere. Like so, you know, for something like that to happen. To be mm -hmm. put in jail for that, like mm -hmm. you know, and all the money that the criminal justice system makes. So why, you know, right. what do we have to do to kind of divert some of that cash mm -hmm. from just throwing people in prison because mm -hmm. people make money doing it mm -hmm. to you know actual rehabilitation, you know, centers and you know pathways and mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I don't know, Tony. How how do I've never really asked you this before. How, how, like, how do people find you and what you do? And how, like, how does that work? Cause uh, I mean, it depends. Like it might be through a referral. It might be a lot of them are, uh, referrals from other patients. Actually. Mm. They're like, man, this, this place is they're pretty cool. They, they actually care. Um, I'm actually, I'm the medical director of a jail too. And so I'm working on something with mm. our parent company and the jail to hopefully mm -hmm. initiate something inside mm -hmm. so that they're stabilized. And then, 
when they when they come out, they can just walk right into a clinic. What um, jail is that? Oh, the Wayne County Jail. Okay. So I don't know if you know Ted St. John. I know at Portage County Jail, they have a program called Inside Out. Okay. Which is that whole idea. He, Yeah. That, but, that would be interesting to, to, to talk to him. So, I mean, I've I, I got to get a lot of people on board, but I, pit, mm-hmm. I pitched this idea like, oh, last week mm-hmm. to uh, to one of the, the head corporate guys, and he was he loved it. Mm-hmm. And they had already looked at, at that area. Mm-hmm. Um, at a, a treatment center down there. And so mm-hmm. he's like, it would be interesting to kind of talk to the captain and see what mm-hmm. they think. And mm-hmm. and with me already being in the jail mm-hmm. and working on the outside too, it's, it's, it'd be a pretty seamless mm-hmm. uh, transition. Yeah, that's excellent. Excellent. That's definitely an area that we need, you know, to work with because they come out and if they don't have, you know, yeah. you're back to, yeah. So your patients are coming not from in they're just as outpatients the entire time some of them could could come from i mean it's it's a you know i don't know what a farrago a hodgepodge or whatever you want to call it of just different sources Mm -hmm. where they they come to us so but yeah i don't know if that answers your question it's not just one main pipeline like it's it's just a it's a bunch of different right and you know it's interesting all through tommy's journey and even now I was told by everybody that I would ask that everyone's journey is different. I, you know, there was one guy at the sober house that, you know, he had been to rehab and then he was doing really good and then he relapsed and he was too embarrassed to tell his parents. Mm -hmm. So he went and lived in his car through three months of the winter. I don't know how he survived, but after that three months, he, he, then he decided I'm going to get some help. And he, you know, he did. And, you know, he's been good ever since some people it's, you know, uh, three times, you know, and in it, it just, it's very unique to the person and what, like I kept saying, when do they hit, when is he going to hit rock bottom? Because full well knowing the three outcomes. And I did not want to lose my son. You know, I had people even say to me, well, Tommy just wants to kill himself. Well, no, that's not true. Because if my son wanted to kill himself, why would he put himself through detox mm-hmm. over right. and over again and do the things that he did to try and keep his life on track? So it's just everybody is so different. But I, I, I do believe that you have to keep offering them more help, keep offering them, you know, pathways. And when you asked me before how we could change the judicial system, I I believe it's a person at a time too. I do uh, crisis intervention training for Portage County. And I understand they'll look at me and they'll say, Rosie, what do I do? You know what I mean? They're not equipped, just like they're not equipped Mm -hmm. to come in for somebody who's having a psychotic episode. You know, there are some counties that have and correct me if i'm wrong have um intervention teams that if it is a psychotic episode or it's a person that has addiction and they go because the police officer is just trying to make sure everybody's safe but you know as a family if they come in and they say well you know your son over they help you you can press charges but clearly that's feeding that's not helping you know i i never would have done that and i know many families wouldn't have done it because then you're dealing with criminal charges and that's a whole nother gamut right i think i think it's important too at the same time to you know i think we've heard a lot of talk about um you know social workers being part of the 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 emergency system and everything Mm -hmm. else i think it's a i think it's a great idea i Mm -hmm. also think it's important to have you know police officers with them if they need to be kept safe but then at the same time like you said like just because the police officer is there doesn't mean that they should be, you know, arresting everybody all the time. Right, right. You know, so I think there's something. 
in not only the intervention team, but the follow up. So say they come and that person, they narc in that person and they're, you know, but they get them stable or whatever. It's that help that you need three days later when the family still doesn't know what to do. When that person maybe is a little clearer and maybe we can talk to them about going to rehab. But again, everything goes back to the stigma. If it's stigmatized going back to rehab or if it's hard, you just get beaten down. This is how you end up. They just... I don't have half the courage and the strength that these people have that are fighting for their lives. When I leave a rehab, I'm empowered because they're trying once again. I don't know that I could do it. Mm -hmm. You know, my son had more strength, you know, than I will ever have. And he kept fighting and kept going back. You know, when you don't have the support and you, you're even, you're, you know, and your mind is, is, is damaged, God bless them for taking each step they take. Yeah. You know, they should be celebrated. I often say when I'm in the rehabs, I said, we're not going to sit here and beat ourselves up. We're going to be celebrated that we're doing something, you know, and you're, you're taking another step, you know. Can you talk about like if you go to the emergency room and you get methadone, how they won't then take intake you? Somewhere? Oh, so there was I had a, somebody call me once and their son <laughs> had had a opiate heroin addiction and you know she had been living with it trying to get him help but he wasn't didn't want help and you know it, it's horrendous stress and um you know if your child had cancer you'd go there'd be all kinds of ways to get him help all kinds of support you know but when you're dealing with addiction nobody understands it you know and it's a horrific thing to watch your child suffer and know that they're you know, captive by something that they can't control themselves. I mean, when they're screaming and hollering, that's not your loved one. That's the disease, you know, and I, I, I tell people all the time, you have to learn to keep that separated. The disease is causing your child to do things, whether it's steal money or yell or scream at you or whatever. It's not your child. Your child is in there somewhere, your loved one. But anyway, so this person, you know, took her son to, um, a Cleveland Clinic facility and was in the emergency room and he they gave him methadone to detox and so they were going to be letting him out but they she was responsible for trying to find where he was going to go for rehab so when she called as soon as she said methadone they're like oh we can't take him for seven days and she's like calling me crying, like, what am I going to do? Because now, mind you, they're going to send him home. That methadone, he's going to be coming off of that, mm -hmm. which is horrific. Yeah. And she's got to control this. She's one woman by herself. And I didn't, you know, that was just craziness to me. Why would they do that knowing, you know, when the optimum thing would be get him into the, you know, overdosed, I mean, not overdosed, but get him into detox, get him stable, and then get him right into a facility, right? And so by the grace of God, it, she brought him home, and I think he had some Suboxone or something, and she gave him a little bit of that or whatever she, you know, to just keep him at bay, and then he was able to go to rehab. But again, a fault of the system, like, you know, we need to be better at this as far as I'm concerned. And why is the parent responsible? Right. Oh, they're, they're, she's, she has, yeah, she has no medical background. <clears throat> and to be honest with you, I've watched people trying, you can't control someone that their brain is yeah. fired up. And what are you going to do? You know, and then what's going to happen? Those receptors are going to tell her son, go oh, you, you, you to survive. Right. It, and Tommy used to say to me, mom, people don't understand that once those receptors set up, you're not using to get high. 
it is that primal force to survive. Mm -hmm. It's telling you, you have to do whatever. There was a young man that I knew that um, I had met him in recovery, and he had been high, you know, using, and the police pulled him over, and, you know, he was, like, out of his mind, and he got in his car, he got in the police car, and he drove over the police officer. Now, he wasn't in his right mind. It was like he just had to get the, you know, it was like, get it, you got to get out, you got to, you got to survive. You know, I mean, it's just, when your brain doesn't work, you can't make correct decisions. Right. And it's difficult, too, because a lot of people see that. And that's all they see is they see the story of right. some, right. you know, addict running over, you know, police officers. Mm -hmm. um, but it just seems like we're missing so many pieces, yes. you know, from point A to point, you know, Z or whatever it might be, you know, we're mm -hmm. missing that all right, they have an issue going, leaving the hospital, but they can't get into the, you know, mm -hmm. a rehab center until seven days. Like, well, you know, once again, like you said, it seems like a, a systemic breakdown of, mm -hmm. of what we got going on. Cause we're willing to do, you know, a and C, but you know, we're not going to do B. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't make sense. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like if we're going to do it, like let's do it and figure out how to, you know, especially since we have so many other systemic issues mm -hmm. that, you know, the judicial system that mm -hmm. ties up into it. Like I just, mm -hmm. You know, I guess I keep going back to how to, what do we do? You know, because what, what the can, system is so broken. <laughs> yeah. For, yeah, no, I know. She said it perfectly, though. It's it's the uh, kind of debunking the stigmatization mm -hmm. and the education piece. Mm -hmm. And it's just that continued wide reaching of education. Mm -hmm. yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. No, no, no. That's exactly. But as far as a whole, the system being so broken that you have someone who is well educated, has the means to be able to keep going to rehab if your insurance is not going to pay for it. What do people who are uneducated, their families have had enough, they've walked mm -hmm. away. Mm -hmm. uh, where do they even begin? Right. Well, the thing too and, is, sorry, go ahead. No, mm -hmm. like, I mean, they're just up against a wall. Mm -hmm. So where do you even begin? Right. Or they've grown up in a family of addiction. Mm -hmm. You know, so right. I, I knew one guy that um, his mom was a, an opiate heroin addict. It's the, the same thing. I mean, it's the same chemical. Um, he was only like 13 and she was sharing with him. So uh, imagine this young, immature brain mm -hmm. being exposed to that. And the longer you're exposed to, the more damage, the more your whole pathways are so, I mean, it's going to take years, right? You know, um, it just, it is overwhelming, but it is something that needs to be addressed because we're not handling it correctly. We have to. And I, I think the more we talk about it, the more we, embrace it and it is what it is and and get rid of that stigma the the further we'll go you know with helping people you know i um have taught a class at my parish and it's you know eighth graders right um it's their confirmation class and um you know the first class i used to always hand out a piece of paper and i'd say write down what makes you happy now these kids are all coming from good houses you know all this stuff really had a hard time because when you have everything and when you fill yourselves up you can't how do you find happiness right and what are we creating but that society of me fill myself up and like someone would write well I get another Xbox game I said okay so we get that Xbox game how long are you happy for well you know maybe a week right because we're constantly trying to 
you know, get that happiness, but not by giving of ourselves. And that is the problem with society, if you ask me, because especially you'll see it with the disease of addiction. For us to get anywhere, if I meet somebody that has the disease of addiction, I have to give of myself. I have to stop judging. I have to meet that person where he's at or her and accept them and let them know that they matter right there. I well, think I think that's a big piece just in general that we're missing from society as a whole, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, you know, regardless of it, whether it be addiction or this, mm -hmm. that, whatever, there's so much contention just in, I don't know if it's isolation mm -hmm. that we're not just being honest with mm -hmm. each other, you know, and if you're not being honest, you know, like a lot of people, we've had this discussion before. Um, if you're not being honest with yourself right, to start off with, you're not going to be honest with other people around you. Right. And you and, have to know that you're worthy right. of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, a lot of times when I talk to families and you'll see it in their face, not my child. And here's the question I'll get. They'll come up after they hear me talk because, you know, oh my, it happened to your family. It could happen to mine, right? And they'll say, what do I do? How do I make sure my kids don't, you know, and then maybe their kids are only like seventh, eighth grade or whatever. And, you know, they're all worked up and everything because it's something they can't control. Right. And, and I'll say to them, you know, you always heard say no to drugs tell your kids no you know these kids you know, Tommy was at all those talks they all heard that I said let's try something different I said when you go home tonight ask your child how they're doing meet them where they're at instead of saying why didn't you get an A say what can, what's going on I said they just want to be heard and that because that doesn't happen that leads to kids self-medicating. That leads to them finding other ways to be happy because they're not really worth it. Do you know what I mean? So we need those ways to make us happy. The more, you know, keep filling ourselves. I, I really think that it, it goes way back to that breakdown of not loving people right where they're at. And, and especially parents, you know, need to do that with their children, need so that they can talk to them. You know what I mean? And listening don't we all everybody wants someone to listen to them everybody wants to be affirmed no matter where you're at you know and that's where if you start listening and affirming people then that person then starts to understand they're worthy of love and when i'm in the rehabs and i look at them and i'll say you are worth it you do deserve a chance your life is a gift right and if you have fallen so you've fallen you're here today and then I'll ask them, do something for yourself. Help the person next to you. And when you help that person next to you, that empowers your soul. And your soul is worth it. And that self-worth is what is important in any aspect. But especially with disease, they have to somehow wrap our heads around giving and, and fostering that in people. That being said, though, you did, you did all those things and still Tommy <laughs> led down that path. Tommy didn't lead down that path. His brain was right. damaged, controlled what was going to happen. Right. And if I look back at it and say, how could I have done things differently? I was not as educated as I am today. Probably why I do what I do. The first time when Tommy, that first accident, mm -hmm. I should have hit it harder. We should have gone for the full-blown thing. But I can remember someone saying to me, he's going to need long-term recovery. And even I was like, what are you talking about? He made it through college. He never was going to, you know, and I, that's when you have to hit it hard. That's when you have to understand. We failed Tommy in the fact that we as a society didn't give him what he needed. It's, if everybody knew that, oh, you have addiction, 
or you have, well, you have cancer, you're going to get this protocol treatment, you're going to need this, this and this, you have addiction, you're going to need 14 weeks in rehab, you're going to need one and a half to two years in sober living. And you're going to need to humble yourself to do what you need to do. That's a big piece of it. Tommy could never humble himself because he had succeeded in so many ways. And they would tell me, you know, Rosie's very complicated. You get people in there that maybe haven't had success. They're going to do it. They're going to take, they embrace it. They're grateful. Tommy was grateful, but he thought he was bigger than life because he had been that way, right? He was this huge star, blah, blah, blah. He was a male model. He never had, you know, so, and he didn't want to look weak, right? But that being said, the two things that I see in people that have that long-term recovery are grateful and humble, right? You know, but we as a society, we don't talk about being grateful. We don't talk about being humble. It's all about me. So what would you say to a parent who comes to you who says, I think my child's using, or I know my child is using, what do I do? Okay, so first off, and, and this is so true, if they admit to using, that's about one-tenth of the story. You know what I mean? There's so much more to it. I didn't realize that either because they're hiding it, and the disease helps them manipulate and helps them hide, right? I would say get them into treatment. Now, that's easier said than done. You know, once somebody turns 18, you can't make them go into treatment. And I remember talking to an interventionist when Tommy was struggling. He said, Rosie, this is his journey. And, you know, goes back to what they tell you. You didn't cause it. You can't change it. And you what is it you, you didn't what you can't change it you didn't cause it and you can't control it and that was so true and he said you can't work harder at tommy's recovery than tommy can mm. so very true there has to be a little bit of relinquishment in the fact and 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 again i this is how i i remember three months before tommy passed sitting by the window saying my prayers crying feeling like i was watching my son die a slow and agonizing death and i couldn't stop it and it came to me that regardless of what was going to happen because there's three outcomes right it was out of my hands i had to relinquish the control i did everything i could i never stopped loving my son enabling is some is not what i did when you pay for someone's apartment so they can be safe while they're working in iop or you take them to giant eagle to buy groceries for the week enabling is throwing money at them and not spending time and caring for them and people are very perceptive tommy always knew when people really didn't care when they stigmatized him and he'd be like really you know yeah i don't deserve that and he wouldn't put up with that you know um but i think as a parent you got to it is your vocation as a parent to love and raise that child. It's not going to be easy. Get help for yourself. Make sure that you are stable and, and together and understand, educate yourself. Because when your child maybe has a moment where they're like, you're right, I, I, I need help again or whatever, you need to be that calm, loving force that says, and we're going to help you do it not oh, you did it again and even myself like when Tommy would have moments of you know we'd have sobriety you know we do so good and I'd be like he's gonna call somebody he's something's gonna trigger something and how I'm so mad at myself now those were moments that could have been mine right but I was so worried about the next step so I tell parents and I tell people with addiction stay in the moment yesterday is gone today is the gift tomorrow is only only a hope what can we do today? And I survived my son's addiction because at the end of the night, and I got on my knees, I thanked God for another day, and I knew I had done my best. I was not perfect. No one is. But I did my best. Easier said than done. Those poor families suffer 
terribly, as much as the person who suffers mm-hmm. with addiction. Uh, again, what can we do as a community? God bless you if your child doesn't have addiction. Why not reach out to someone that does and help them some way and let them know they matter? You know what I mean? That's the alien, you know, the opposite of addiction is connection. That goes for the family, for everyone. You want to alienate, things are going to get worse. Connection is what I would say. Well, I think that too, it goes back to, um, you know, as a big picture, the more we alienate each other, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, things get weird real fast. Right. Um, and to allow people to make mistakes and to be wrong and, you know, have that, you know, okay, it's in the past, we made these mistakes, where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and I know, you know, I think on a grand scale around the world, we don't do that as human beings nearly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but bringing it down, I know Tony's talked about before where, you know, he's had people in there, like, like you said earlier, he's like, you know what? Um, you're, you're driving the car, you might make a mistake today, you might crash it, you might dent it up, but tomorrow's a new day. It's behind you now, where can we go from here? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I guess that's a big piece of why we're doing this right here is to, mm-hmm. you know, get some of that communication out to people, whoever will listen to it is, Hey, people are going to, people are going to mess up. We're all going to do something wrong. We're all going to screw up, but you know, we, ha- in order to fix it, in order to move forward, we have to have somebody that allows us to do those things. And, you know, I th- and it seems kind of like what I hear you saying. Is, right. And when they mess up, every time you have a, a relapse or, or somebody messes up, you look at what caused that, what happened, what can we do different? Mm-hmm. No one is perfect. That's the whole thing about the journey of life and the recovery, that as you maneuver through anyone's life, you look at where you fell. How can you change things? How can you, what can you put in place to make things better? Because it is not a race. It is a journey, right? And I think we put it on ourselves and it's so miserable. We want it fixed immediately. It goes back to that whole world thing of immediate happiness. It's not going to be like that with recovery. You know, you have to humble yourself. You, sometimes you have to take it a minute at a time, but you are worth it. And they on, the only way a person can wrap their head around that, a child or whatever, is if those around them are saying, we're here for you, you are worth it. Then they themselves mm-hmm. will begin to believe it. That's why they do those meetings and they can open themselves up and it lets their brain start working again and feeling and making decisions and feeling good about themselves, you know. Um, and letting go of the shame, I think. And yeah. that's one thing that you always say is how proud you were that Tommy was your son. And mm-hmm. I think parents struggle with that. Mm-hmm. And I think when, like you had said, you know, he saw it as a weakness that he mm-hmm. would relapse. Mm-hmm. And how strong you have to be to make it through rehab. Right. And just, I mean, it. And all pe- of the inner work that you have to do. Mm-hmm. that none of us, many of us will never do who or are, never. quote, don't have a problem. Right. Right. Well, I so think when you're in that dark spot, it's like, you know, going back to what we just said, when you're in, when you're in that dark spot, it's hard to see tomorrow. It's hard right. to see that there is a tomorrow mm-hmm. or a month from now or six months from now. Um, it's kind of funny when you're talking about, I was listening to a conversation with, of all people, Dr. Phil. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know how I started listening to it, but like, well, Dr. Phil gets a lot of, you know, bad name from a lot of different people just for whatever. But, you know, he was talking. I was like, I was kind of surprised at um, what he was saying and how he was articulating himself. But he, he mentioned, um, you know, people with issues, whether it be, you know, addiction or, you know, different types of things in their lives. That, that, that if they're not looking down the road a year, then, you know, or if you're not looking into the future, then you're going to be in the same place 
you are now tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that it's if you can you know encourage those people to take that all right let's look at tomorrow let's try to make changes tomorrow and then the next day and then the next day a little tiny you know baby steps but he said in a year from now you can look back and go wow wow mm -hmm. look how far i came maybe it's not where i want to be but look how far i've came and i think you know i guess a big part of without that encouragement if you can't see tomorrow you need somebody to say hey there's a tomorrow right. out there Mm -hmm. And there's a day after that. And there's a right. year from now if you, you know, mm -hmm. if you aim for it, shoot for it. Right. And if we presented it that way to those people, that mm -hmm. this is, it's a long journey and that, you know, bit by bit, we're going to get to where we need to be. There is hope. When you can give someone hope, that's the whole, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, many times I was driving to work the one day and almost in tears, missing my son and been through so much, you know, and I thought, wow. Oh, wow, like, you know, what is going, and then it came to me that, you know, everything that has happened in my life has brought me to the point where I'm at today. Tommy's life had such purpose. Tommy suffered tremendously the last six years of his life, but Tommy's spirit and love lives on today through me, and I'm blessed to be able to do that, right? Every one of us has a purpose. You know, you have to work it yourself, be kind and give to others to find that purpose. But when I'm in the rehabs and they're all sitting there and they're nervous and God bless them, they're just mentally and physically sick, you know, and I'll say to them, you know, they look at me like, how can I have hope? And I'll, I'll tell them all, okay, I want all of you to hold your breath. And they all do it, you know, and then eventually they all start breathing again and they look at me and I'm like, okay, so you breathed again. Is that because I'm here? Mm -mm. Is that because you're in this recovery room? Mm -mm. It's because there is a purpose for you. You know, Tommy had three car accidents that he should have died, but he didn't. And I used to look at him and say, Tommy, your life is a gift. And what you're going to do with it is your gift back to him. It might not be perfect. But we're going to take it a step at a time, right? He's not done with you. When it's your time, it's your time. I could leave here today and be in a car accident. It's my time to go. But today is what we have to look at and be proud of ourselves for today. You know, again, like Lisa said, could I have been in rehab four times? Probably not. You know, I'm, I can't let, you know, I, that tenacity and that keep trying and the, to love yourself enough. And, you know, I guess, especially when I'm at the rehabs and because of COVID, you know, no families can come and they're just dying for love. Like, you know, I'll have the women say, I haven't seen my kids for two months, or I had this one woman come up to me and, you know, I don't have to wear a mask when I'm talking, but they're all, you know, masked up. And at the end she said, you know, can I just hug you? Like, I haven't had a hug from my mom. And I'm like, yeah, I go, they're not going to fire me. I don't get paid for this. You know, <laughs> I said, but yeah, you can hug me. And then all of a sudden the line gets, there's mm -hmm. 10 people that need a hug, you know, and it's just that human caring about another person. It really is the epitome of everything. And I think someone else recognizing that you're worthy. Mm -hmm. And I think for many of these people who have lived through childhood traumas, whose parents may have had mental illness and addiction issues, mm -hmm. truly, and it's like a foreign concept to us who mm -hmm. tell our kids constantly, yeah, you love they them. are loved. Mm -hmm. You're worthy of being happy mm -hmm. and healthy. Like, no one's ever told them that. And I think for women, especially, mm -hmm. when you when they get sober and they're in mm -hmm. and then it starts to hit them, 
mm-hmm. everything that they had to do to feed their habit. Right. And then how do you, once you hit that realization of prostituting yourself mm-hmm. or, you know, everything that you've done, how do you then begin to feel worthy? Right. It takes but a lot of are, time. But you are, because that's in the past. Right. It takes a lot of time, a lot of reassurance, a lot of work. Recovery, a lot of work. Recovery is work. And we as a society need to provide for these people so they can do the work. And I don't think we recognize Mm-mm. what hard work it is no, no. to get sober and to stay sober. And I have to say one other thing. So um, I go out to Warren once a month and I bring lunch to the guys in two sober houses and I'm blessed to have friends that go with me, Lisa being one of them. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter what we bring in. If I bring in bagels or I bring in lunch, you would think I brought in the greatest thing ever. But what they want more than anything is just to talk. Mm-hmm. There's to feel like, you know, I always make things to put on their bags like, or on their beds, like, you know, have a good day or you matter. And the one time I went by myself, I had been at a rehab and I went by myself and um, I just went there in the afternoon and I was sitting there and the one guy had said to me, he goes, Rosie, um, you came by yourself. And I said, yeah, you know, I, I didn't, people were busy and I just wanted to make sure you guys had lunch this month. And he said to me, he said, Rosie, it's not the food. You know, he said, it's that caring that you bring. And he said, you never bring anybody to our house that doesn't love us right where we're at. And that's so true. I would never. I have wonderful friends. Hey, I want to cook something or hey, you know what I mean? Or they come with me. That to them is so valuable. Do you know what I mean? And I and I looked at him and I said, of course. I said, because you, you're, you know, you matter. You're worth it, you know. And. It, it's it's just like I seem like I say it over and over again, and you know it, it, it doesn't have to be with addiction. It has to be everyone deserves that. You know what I mean? And where do you find your peace? Where do you find your happiness? By loving others, by meeting people right where they're at, by giving of yourself, and that's pretty much the crux of what they need to do is to love themselves, know they're worth it, and then so many of them help each other. You know, so many of people that are in recovery, you know, positions are, you know, they, they're, they're giving back, you know, and it's amazing, you know, it's, it's wonderful to see. And I think a lot of people don't, they don't think it could ever happen to them because they have a picture in their mind mm-hmm. of what an addict looks like mm-hmm. and acts like. And it's far, like if you saw Tommy, mm-hmm. you would never in a million years because he looked like a movie star when he walked into a room but, it, you know, and after the first few times we went to the uh, sober house, you know, the biggest thing that I left with was, like, they look like they could be one of my, like, one of my mm-hmm. boys. Like mm-hmm. that, you know, like mm-hmm. they... Because the disease doesn't care how smart you are, how attractive you are, how much you're loved, how much money you make. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. No, it does not matter. And in again, that goes back to our what we think Mm -hmm. do you know what i mean and back to the education thing Mm -hmm. and back to that it is not a stigmatizing disease you know many times you hear people that you know if you have that addictive gene already and then you have surgery and then Mm -hmm. you're given a high dose of opiates that you kind of like that feeling and and you know you you're taking it like like they said and no one's monitoring and next thing you know you're addicted you know it it does happen that way too Mm -hmm. um you know again no pill out there is going to solve all of our problems, you know, even with pain, we have to manage it in other ways. And um, 
I don't think people set out, no one ever says, I'm going to set out to be an addicted person. No one does. No one does. Just like someone doesn't say they, you know, want to have schizophrenia or a mental illness, you know, sometimes it, it's just in your makeup and it happens, you know, um, so. Are there some things when somebody comes in to you for the first, like an intake that kind of in your, you can tell like they're not ready or they are ready or. Oh, yeah. So like, it, it kind of, you know, it, it, it just depends. You know, I obviously I sit down and I listen to them, collect a good history on them. Um, you know, how, how did, how did the addiction start? You know, what were some other poly substances or illicit substances you used at a young age? Uh, is there a family history component of, a, 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 you know, father, mother, um, kind of collecting all that and then, you know, extrapolating what I can from that information to make the best judgment call. Um, you know, once they come in to that point, usually they're a pretty good candidate, but I had someone the other day and we've, I've tried to, one of the big problems is the different analogs in fentanyl. And so I, I utilize, uh, like, uh, buprenorphine therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, so the Suboxone mm -hmm. and Subutex and it's trying to get them stabilized without going into precipitated withdrawals, which mm -hmm. is, oh my gosh, it's, it's almost you know, trying to figure out each person. There's no formula in it. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, you know, trying to titrate up and how long can they go? Can you go 30 hours? Can you go 40 hours? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it takes 72 hours and they don't, they're not successful. And so they have to go into some sort of a, a detox to get them stabilized for five days, seven days, whatever it is. And that's where, you know, sometimes people are like, they're reluctant to do that. And I've got a gentleman that we're about three weeks in and he can't get stabilized. Um, and he's, he's you know, using other different illicit substances and, you know, it's having that conversation and recognizing, Hey, what we're doing here, it, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be a point where you can come back and do this. But if I keep trying to do what I'm doing here and it's not successful, it's kind of the definition of, of craziness mm -hmm. you know we're, we're going to expect a different result but we're not changing right, anything right so it's not to penalize you to, to kick you out of this program like i'll help you find a detox you know you get stabilized you can come back but yeah absolutely there's there's definitely people that it's it's they're not ready for it they're they're not ready for it so i kind of have to get them and i worry though when they're not ready for it like you know when tommy relapsed what, what do you do with those people? Yeah. You want to try and keep them safe. And a lot of times I'll get calls from parents and they'll say, that's it. He was good. You know, good. Like he's a better person yeah. when he's sober. He was good. And now he used again. I'm kicking him out. And he's, you know, higher than a kite. And I will beg those families, please don't do that. Yeah. Because if you kick them out, what are they going to do? Their brains are fired up. They're going to go down. They're going to, they could die. And, you know, like you said, the different analogs of fentanyl, this is half the problem. Yeah, there are so many things out there. And these young kids, they don't know what they're getting. You know what I mean? There's Xanax bars that are actually fentanyl. Oh, yeah. There's so much out there. And these poor kids, they don't know what they're exposing themselves. These are huge drugs. Yeah, and, that, and that's so, you know, we do the, the urinary drug tests all the time. And there's mm -hmm. so many times people will be like, I didn't use benzo or I didn't use cocaine. And I'm like, well, something that you did yeah, use that you thought you were using, yeah, yeah, had it in it. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh my gosh. Or, you know, they're like, oh my gosh, there's, that was fentanyl. And I'm like, yeah, there's, there's really not any true heroin anymore, at least no. around Northeast Ohio. Right, right. I'm like, they're all, it's all fentanyl. Um, but kind of, it's, it's interesting that you're a pharmacist. Um, mm -hmm. So that stigmatization is pretty wide reaching. Mm -hmm. um, from my experience, and, and one of the things that I've seen with some of my patients is uh, actually some of the, the pharmacists will kind of give them a hard time. Mm -hmm. I'll call the medication in, and 
you know, they're like, well, it's a day early. Like we, we can't fill it. Even if I give them permission mm-hmm. um, or, you know, they just, they make them wait for, and I know they're very busy and I, no, and I tell my no, patients that, but, it, but there are definitely times where I've called and I can just tell and I'm like, listen, but that person's suffering. And that's what I tell them. Or, uh, so let's say it's difficult to get them stabilized or they relapse and you know, they are on the different analogs of, of the fentanyl. And so sometimes in, it's easier for them to get stabilized on just buprenorphine. So subutex mm-hmm. for a couple of days and then transition into uh, suboxone with the buprenorphine and the naloxone component. Well, it's a, there's a prior authorization that's always needed. Mm. <laughs> and so I'm like, guys. Which you, takes days. It, sometimes. it can take days. <laughs> Usually I can get them within the 24 hours, but it depends on the insurance company. Mm, right. And, I, and so I'm like, insurance companies are dictating how I prescribe and how I practice. Mm-hmm. And I said, guys, you don't understand this. Like, by this taking three days, someone already relapsed. So, you know, their, their receptors are they're different. You know, the downsaturation. And I said, so now they're going to go out and they might not have their normal dealer. And the amount that they would normally do, now they might overdose. So yeah. literally by you not giving me this pre-authorization so that I can reinduce this person, mm-hmm. now this child doesn't have a father because they died, and that's on you. Right, right. Like that, that's on an insurance company who didn't go to medical school or nurse practitioner school or PA school. Right. And, and you're dictating because of, um, um, is it a medical necessity? And right. it's like holy. And what's their response? Yeah. Usually, if I can get if I can get in touch with someone on the phone, that, and and I'll start asking them different questions, then the, then they'll do it. But sometimes they're like, "Well, we gotta wait. We gotta wait." And so right, the ignorance. Yeah, and, I, and it goes back to that education, like you were saying. And I, I guess I don't know how you educate insurance companies too, because it's but they need to be done. We, I, I know. I there, know. There was a woman I spoke at a woman's recovery group, and she was a nurse. And um, she was in recovery, and she brought up that whole insurance thing, and she mm-hmm. said, "That's my calling." You know, she goes and she talks to them, and it, it all comes down to that money. Do you the, know what I like mean? You were saying the money in the prison system, money with big right, pharma, right, right, and the insurance companies dictating they can only have this amount, and the pharmacists thinking. And and don't get me wrong, there are good pharmacists, bad pharmacists. Yeah. There are bad insurance people, good insurance people, and good providers and bad providers, right? Too, so. And you know, oh my God, we're not going to get paid for it. You have to yep. wait, but. In reality, you're talking about life or death, you know. On the jail side of it, what happens if someone who's addicted, long-term user, is high, brought in by the police for whatever they did, Mm -hmm. got caught stealing or whatever, what happens then? So are they on... If you can explain that. Yeah, are they on a stabilizing agent already? No, they're just out using street... Yep, yep. So the, the... I'm not employed directly by the jail. I'm employed by a third party. And so they don't they don't have a they have a quote unquote map program, which is they don't really utilize it there. Mm-hmm. And they don't have a, a substance abuse treatment program really. So it's 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 detoxing with comfort meds. And I'm like, oh, this is terrible. Like even com- all the comfort meds in the world, like and like you said, the those neuroplastic changes have already happened and and so what happens is I mean, what do you think happens? So you can imagine. They're, they're going to go through their withdrawals. I'm going to try and, you know, get them as stabilized as possible with the comfort meds. They leave, and boom, they use again. Or they get sentenced to jail, and they get out, and they, they haven't had years of, of sobriety. And so they, they it's just mm-hmm. this vicious cycle like we were talking about. And so that's why I'm like, man, if I could implement some sort of a program mm-hmm. in, in jail. And, and we do utilize some Vivitrol, but it's, you know – it's the monthly shots and, and it, mm-hmm. it it can be effective, but then if 
it's expensive. And so if they don't have, I think it's $1,200, $1,300 a shot or something like that. So if they don't have a way to pay for it and they're on the outside or they're not set up with a program. Right. And if there's no program, the Vivitrol will block the opiates, but they'll just use the the addictive decisions. They'll they'll use something else. Something else. It doesn't matter. Because their brain just says, I need something. I need something. Give me that. You know, I got to, I got to get that. I got, you know, so there's, again, so much that has to happen. It's a, in anybody's recovery, whether they're in jail or whether they're, there's all these different facets that all have to come into play. And you can only hope by having all of them into play that we're going to be successful. You know, I know everybody recovers differently and everything like that. But if it was my child or my love, I would want every possible yeah. thing that I could do. And as a society, we're losing the battle. So why not put that energy and that effort into giving them everything that we can, the best possible scenario? We're still going to have relapses and everything like that, but not shun them, get them back on track, you know. So can you, and I know, like, you have a great story of our mutual friend who detoxed her son at home, basically, of what happens physically to someone when they're detoxing. Oh, yeah. And how bad it is. Yeah, I mean, do you, do you, 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 do you want to answer this? Do you well, answer I mean, it's, like it's, pre- it's pretty bad. I mean, yeah, I don't think people her, realize it's how painful. horrific, um, very painful muscle aches. It's like the worst flu you've ever had. There's diarrhea, vomiting. There's uh, Tommy used to sit in the shower for hours, letting the water run over him because you feel like things are crawling on you. Um, you can't sleep. You're sweating. Um, terrible pain again, and just anxiety, uh, hallucination. I mean, he couldn't sleep. Uh, you feel like you're jumping out of your skin, and um, you know every so often I'll get that feeling. I mean, I don't have addiction, but. And it drives me crazy, you know, when you're laying there and you just feel like, oh, I'm just going to, like, everything's getting on your nerves. But that's 24-7 for them. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure, like, I don't know, like, the patients I talk to, they're like, I just want to die. Oh, yeah. I would rather die than go right. through that. Right. right. So that's what I'm saying. Like, when someone made the comment to me, well, it seems like Tommy just wants to kill himself. I'm like, no, that's not the case. And, you know, it, it just, I had someone say to me, you know, going back to those fentanyl analogs, to, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, what people were using when they were using drugs, they were using what they knew they were using. Yeah. Nowadays, they have upped the the ante with these fentanyl, and it's in everything. It's in cocaine. It's in methamphetamine. Even the uh, drug cartels that pump those drugs in, they saw, because they came out with those restrictions on opiate dispensing, you know, it was out of hand, you yeah. know, so they started, you know, having the ORS program where pharmacists have to log things. And then, you know, doctors can only give you five days of opiates after, you know, certain yeah. restrictions. So the co- drug cartels are very smart and they saw that and they upped the amount of methamphetamine they were making and pumped fentanyl in with that and that you know was sent over so it, it just it's it's sick because it's money it's, yeah. it's money no you mentioned that um you know and there's the viewpoint as well with some people they think that you know legalizing all these things would break down some of those systems mm-hmm. no you know because some people think legalize it all you know tax it all and it's all you know controlled and whatnot so people know what they're getting but obviously that has that's a whole nother you know mm-hmm. barrel of and I think trouble that, there too but what's what's kind of your isn't oregon did you see that yeah, they, yeah, they, they, they decriminalized yeah. it so you can have uh, you know possess a certain amount and then you get the choice of uh, either paying a what is it a, a short stint in 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 jail or paying a fine and then supposedly that fine is supposed to go towards 
like rehab centers, I think. Yeah. Right. yeah. Or not, not jail, but yeah, something, something along the lines I think we of... have to lean towards something like that. I mean, when you look at it now, you know, people get so addicted that they're out of their minds. They've been exposed to things, high levels, if it's the, you know, the fentanyl or an analog of that. And it causes them to do crazy things, crime, break into houses, things they wouldn't do, stealing and everything like that. So I, I think there is some thought process that maybe that's where we need to start start going. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, so are you talking like, are you talking straight like I mean, Spain, Portugal? Yeah, I mean, like, there's a whole spectrum Wild of, West, you know, like, well, let, let it go. Like, well, you don't want to do any drugs? Like, <laughs> no, more, yeah. no more laws of paternalism. Well, like, dude. You want to take that bump right there? Fire away. Well, there is, is there is some argument. There's people that had those arguments yeah. where there's those places where I think Portugal is one of the where. So Spain was before that, and Portugal. I think Portugal's Portugal, done it better in some. Well, it, I, Portugal's better, been more vocal about maybe that's what it is. About, about so you can just way. walk in somewhere yeah. and buy cocaine, but yeah, right, so the like Tylenol. Yeah, because some people, you know, whether it's completely de- completely criminalized to you know decriminalizing it, and then to you know it's not. It's not punishable at all to all the way to, hey, we're going to manufacture these drugs so we can, you know, supply people with the drugs that aren't the the fentanyl and all these mixers Mm -hmm. and different things that, you know, they don't realize they're getting. Um, You know, there's people that will take that all the way to the extreme and saying everything should be legalized and there should be it should be just like any other, you know, drug pharmaceutical drug is okay. This is so they know exactly what this is. And some people will take that stance of legalize everything and make it you know manufactured yeah and i think so there was if you dig into this there was some huge healthcare reform at the same time that they did that legalization which people don't give enough credit for right with helping that but they also have you know the the, the needle exchanges they have mm-hmm. uh places where you can go for purity testing i believe yeah mm-hmm. well, the purity testing is another thing too. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly which i'm man i don't want to <laughs> feel like i have to tread lightly here right <laughs> i i feel like i'm pretty pro-drug I'm very like against loss of paternalism. If I don't want to wear a seatbelt, I shouldn't have you. You know, don't don't write me a ticket for not wearing a seatbelt. But it's if you know if I'm sane, if I can make those decisions on my own, and if they don't harm anyone else. And so I think that's the conversation you and me had, where it's like, man, at, at what level does that harm someone else? Right. And and I know it goes back to to you said the choice, but I I explain that to the women that that you guys interact with that didn't have the choices right. and then all of a sudden now you've made these these chemical changes to the brain and it's like no then, then, then it's this like this equate that's 3d chess basically like you're yeah. always like to absolutely to. everything's changing at all times and, and so uh, i don't know I, i'm not a fringe person i think too many bad things happen when you're completely on the fringe and so mm-hmm. i i don't i don't know i don't have a great answer yeah, I guess I, my I guess... answer would be i love the education and the, the destigmatization of of those things and i so go ahead please no yeah i was just going to say that kind of goes back to the 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 system the systemical problem of you know whether it be you know the you know the gangs in mexico and you know pushing all these drugs up and you know the different you know you know black markets as it were that that all these even more negative things it keeps on building on building and building on it and that's kind of the argument against that i'm not saying we should legalize everything because you know that's could get in get you in real deep water there too but it's uh it's an interesting idea that you know we have you know the the criminal justice system that's full of people for you know non-violent offenses why are those people you know why are those people in jail they should be given help not given you know a worse 
you know, starting point, you know. And, you know, a lot of the people back when I was like a teenager, they stopped having group homes for mentally ill people. You know, they had had the institutions and then they went to group homes, which was phenomenal because they need someone to manage their meds and someone to keep an eye on them. That's, a, you know, living together, that community type event, because a lot of families couldn't deal with it. And I remember watching a Phil Donahue show years ago and this woman saying, my sister has schizophrenia and she's on the streets and no one is helping us, okay? We've never recovered from that. There still are no group homes. You have people that have mental illness that are now housed in jails. And the same thing is happen happening with addiction. The same thing. You're housing people that have a disease. You're not helping them. And we're not, you know, and then, you know, when I talk to people, I say, well, Rosie, we've got to find people that'll do these things. We've got to find places. We've got to find the money, you know. And I was talking to Lisa on the way out here. Nobody wants to be a psychiatrist. Nobody wants to go into that. They don't get paid enough. It's a hard job, you know. Um, I'm so, it's, it's just a, it's a hard, hard thing. But if it's legal, do you think part of the problem with addiction is that drive and the need and what you have to do to get the drug. And if you could just walk in and get it, that I, I, I don't, maybe the disease doesn't I think the get so out of control or no? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I have, if you gave it, if it was easier, you know, then would some people still get out of control? Yeah, because the more you use, the more you need, the more you can't control. I don't, I don't know. Similar to alcohol. Right, right, right. I, I don't believe, I believe that some of the offenses need to be, you know, the punishment doesn't fit the offense. Mm -hmm. True. You know what I mean? Um, if somebody is overdosed and then we hit them with, you know, a felony or whatever, now try and go get a job. You right. know what I right. mean? Try to pull yourself out of the hole that right. you've been I, put into right. almost at this point. And right. it, it is terrible. Even for somebody who was successful and I, I see that and it breaks my heart. You know, or, you know, they're on probation. We know of somebody on probation and they just have to test clean, you know, or clean or whatever the heck. It's so ridiculous. But, and they make it to the day before and they relapse. So now we're going to, you know, it's like the boom. When meanwhile, they should be encouraged that they made it that long, you know, maybe extended a little bit. But it's always such a horrendous you know, thing, and then it always leads to them doing something like stealing something or something like that. And then it's just a cluster. And we'll spend the, what is it, $35,000 a year for a prisoner. But why can't we right. use that money a, and the, use it for real? The money's there. <laughs> like, right. The money is not there. spending it in the right spot. Right, right. <laughs> you know? right. And it, it's complicated because I do understand. And people will say, Rose, you know, you talk like that. But a lot of times they don't want the help. Well, that's part of the broken brain. And we have to keep meeting them where they're at and hoping for that moment of clarity when they will. Yeah. And do they, I mean, I, do they not want the help or have they not been around someone that they actually didn't feel like they didn't judge them? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, that stigma is a huge thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've, I've, my patients, I, I try and build rapport with them. And so mm -hmm. a fun part of building rapport is being able to rock a beard and some longer hair and <laughs> just coming in cowboy boots and it makes them feel comfortable. <laughs> yeah. And, and they literally, they're like, you're like I was saying, you're one of us. And, <laughs> and they're like, and then they just talk to me and. And it's crazy the conversations I have because I I genuinely care about what's going on in your life. Like I right. want to hear about. I know their kids by name. I know right. their spouse's name. Like, tell me about something great that happened this week, or tell me about something wasn't great. great that happened this right. week. But there, a lot of times people are like, just coming in here. Like it's not the suboxone or the subutex. Like, 
just someone actually like genuinely caring the about connection me. right and, and, right and listening and like i i don't feel like you judge me and i'm like mm-hmm. yeah I, I don't judge you like i right. could be in that seat and you could be over right. here right and i was like i don't have the right to judge anyone no like i've made mistakes that you know came to light or didn't come to light and i've got people that didn't judge me and that you know i i just i don't it, know we it's, just need it's to a not. gift that you have and right. it's the gift of unconditional love and you can't find that you have that is the greatest gift of all that you can have is unconditional love no matter what you're dealing with and the fact that you're able to give that to them gives them that hope because everyone needs affirmation. Everyone needs to know. Can you imagine distraught and oh my God, they feel their world's crying. But to give them, you are worth it. Yeah. And and they can sense. They're very good at sensing. Are you really saying that, or do you really mean it? Do you know what I mean? So that that's awesome. Yeah, you know, you you're saving lives by doing it, that. It feels weird to hear that, but I mean, the, my patients say that too. They're like, dude, you're literally like, like. Mm-hmm. If, it, if I wasn't in here, I'd be out there and like mm-hmm. I've already OD'd three, four times. Like I'm mm-hmm. gonna die mm-hmm. the next time, or I'm not. My kid's not gonna have a, a mm-hmm. dad. But mm-hmm. kind of going back to that unconditional love thing, it, it's not easy. Like mm-hmm. I don't want anyone to think it's just all no, of a sudden it's you, you just it's across the board. Because there's certainly times where you want to judge or mm-hmm. you don't want to love this person because it's so frustrating. And mm-hmm. you know the the rest of my office staff and I, we always talk and it's very easy to get jaded mm-hmm. in healthcare. It's, mm-hmm. it's easier to get jaded, you know, in the population that, that I work with. And so it is kind of a, a, a daily battle, I guess, where you have to check yourself mm-hmm. and you're like, I need to be the best version of myself and not judge and love so mm-hmm. that. Make know, a difference. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I tell families all the time, you know, they get so angry. You got to leave that anger at the door. I know they have pushed your buttons. They have made you so exhausted. It's not that person. It is the disease that is doing that. And I tell them to try and separate it in their minds. I mean, I get up every morning. I hate the disease of addiction and what it does to so many families and so many people. But I will never stop loving those people. They don't. They didn't ask for it. By the grace of God, I'm not that person. You know what I mean? And it is it is a, a battle, and it's something you have to remind yourself every morning. And I do so that when that family calls me, and they're right, you know, I have to remind them too. Your child is in there somewhere, or yeah. your loved one. I, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I think it, it just goes on the humanizing. Mm-hmm. You know, the people we're so good, at least from my perception, we're so good these days of just, you know, you know, not my kid, not my problem, not you know. That's not, you talked about, it, it really hit me when you talked about the folks, you know, in these rehabs, their their families aren't allowed to come in and see them because they have COVID. Yeah. Um, not my problem. They're, you know, but maybe necessarily we don't all have to be, you know, even as far as go, as far as say advocates for, you know, all these different issues. But if, if we can, you know, get the word out and educate people just to mm-hmm. go, Hey, you know what? Maybe that's not your specific problem, but you know, if we fix the criminal justice system a little bit, or if we, you know, just gave a little bit of attention to this and understood that, Hey, these are people and had enough people that did that Mm -hmm. might give the people that are really fighting for that cause enough power and enough, you know, oomph to, to change things Mm -hmm. by, you know, humanizing Mm -hmm. our fellow humans. Yeah. I think what's hard though, like you had said, from a healthcare standpoint, and I've been a nurse for a pediatric nurse for 27 years is you see baby after baby being born addicted. You see moms who are literally overdosing in the room with the baby. 
or their kid. You see abuse cases that are horrible, like infants that are getting the crap beat out of them. It's hard then to have also to have sympathy for the parent who's addicted. Mm-hmm. And I think it's hard for anyone to grasp yes. how much the drug has a grasp over you that you're, you choose that over your child. And that's, and the, I, that's, that's hard. the immensity of what addiction is. Of how is, strong it is. Of how strong it is and how those people, will, not meaning rude, but how those people will do whatever to get that drug. They're not getting it. Most of them that are in full-blown addiction are not doing it to get a high feeling. They're doing it because their brain has been rewired to think this is how they survive. They will choose that drug over their child, over anybody. It's not them making that choice. It's a brain that's broken that is continuing to make the same choice. The problem is, though, is if we continue not to fix those people now we have a, a newborn who's Absolutely. born into an environment that it the cycle just keeps going well there's a huge going huge amount of grandparents going. that are raising these children yeah. they have support groups i mean it's i i you know i, I hear stories and you know i i have my own my own struggles to carry and everything like that but i sometimes think oh my god if tommy would have had a child or something and i would be raising a child you know god bless those people you know and yet they do it because they know their child didn't you know set out for this and yet you know it happened and it's no it wasn't the 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 grandchild's fault you know but what do you do with somebody who's say we someone was addicted you bring them into jail and you say you're either going to stay in prison or you're going to go to rehab if they're not ready to be in rehab what are the chances they're going to make it through in your experiences that you well, see? Sue, the, the people I come in, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're going to go through withdrawals. So it's a, it'd be a pretty easy decision to go, do you want to suffer and feel absolutely terrible? Or do you want to try and get stabilized on Fivitrol or get stabilized on Suboxone? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, you know, 10 days of suffering or... Let's transition into this. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know that anybody's going to say no to mm-hmm. to not having to go through those withdrawals. But then, I, what is their success rate at making it through rehab? Oh uh, yeah, and, and so like if that's your choice, the yeah, judge says yeah, yeah. you're going to rehab or you're going to prison, where you're not going to get that. Yeah, that you might have better statistics yeah. than that, just because, like I said, I don't have we don't have that program set up, so that's. Regardless of if a judge says or you're choosing or your family says or whatever, it's an average of eight times before somebody gets to long-term recovery. And, you know, I've had discussions many times with a lot of people in the field and they're like, you know, Rosie, it could be their first time or it could be their 15th time. It's when they're ready. Again, that puts it back on that person, like a judgment call, like when they really get it or when they, you know, have a character, Mm -hmm. you know, has nothing to do when their brain is healed enough. And only God knows that, you know, I purpose or, you know, I tell people all the time, I don't care if you're here 15 times. I don't care. You're here today. Let's keep working on that puzzle. Today's a gift. Got to keep moving forward. And that's just what the journey is. It's inherent to the disease is relapsing. What you try to do is prevent those relapses from happening. And we know what we need to do to try and prevent those relapses. You know, putting those support groups, if it's medication-assisted treatment, it's. but I'll tell you the biggest thing is the support yeah. of a family. 
and 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 those that care about them and just what he does in that few you know hour appointment he gives them the hope that we all we all need hope do you know what i mean so it, it but is there a you know okay well you go here you're gonna believe me i asked every expert i could have when tommy was suffering how do i get him you know how does he hit rock bottom do you know and i can remember them saying everybody's journey is so different but what makes me sad is as days as years have gone by these younger kids are getting things and they're exposing their brains to astronomical substances, you know, like they think they're getting a couple Xanax bars or something, and they're getting an analog of fentanyl. They use that, you know, fentanyl's strong, you know, yeah. they're going to be addicted and not even realize, and then, oh my God, you know, and then, you know, they don't want to go home, nobody, like just nobody wants to go home and say, hey, I got a drug problem, and that's another whole thing, you know, educating families, educating people that so when that child does originally get into that issue, like Tommy had it for a long time, but he thought he had it under control. He didn't want to come home and tell me I was going through, a, you know, a divorce. I he, he wanted to be that strong person. He wasn't going to come home and say, Mom, I need help. Yet if he had, you know, seizures or something like that, he'd be the first one. Mom, I need to go get some help, right? We need to somehow bridge that gap with families too. And that and that comes with the education and the understanding so that your child will come home. Like the few times, you know, I have talked in colleges and, and high schools, but especially it breaks my heart in high schools when somebody will come up at the end of the talk and the parents aren't there. I wish the parents were there. But again, you know, when you get the parents, you get that look, not yeah. my child, you know, yeah. but they'll come up and they'll whisper in my ear, my best friend has a problem. I don't, you know, and I'm like, well, can we get them to a counselor? Well, they don't want to, you know what I mean? And the longer it goes on, the worse the more receptors, the harder it's going to be. I do believe that the best case scenario is getting somebody in as early as possible, yeah. you know? So what if a family, like it's their 19, 20-year-old who's still living at home, their behavior is out of control because of their addiction. They have younger siblings, and the parents say, I can't have that. Like, that person hasn't hit rock bottom yet, but I can't have them in my house like what that where is, what do you do as a parent then because you don't want to send them out no but you can't also right. have them right so uh, there is no easy answer to that i mean i i can remember thinking that sometimes tommy never got like out of control but he he was i could tell he was high and i could not expose that to my other children mm -hmm. and i remember thinking why am i being made to choose you know, I love Tommy, mm -hmm. I love my kids. And, you know, I would write notes to my other two kids and leave it by their beds. You know, Tommy's sick, please be patient. I love him as much as I love you. You know, we're gonna keep trying as long, you know, trying to get Tommy to get to help. And as long as Tommy was working at it, at a at a program or doing something, I would, I would be there, do you know, I did get to the point where, you know, he didn't seem like he was and I said, Tommy, you know, you're gonna need to do, you can't stay here if you're not actively trying to to do something. And most of the time he was. He was mm -hmm. always fighting the battle, always doing what he could, trying to get back to work. Um, but at that time, I think you have to say to those families, you have to say to that 19-year-old, you're either going to go get help, and sometimes they go get help and they might not even have their heads really wrapped around it, but it's a you got to take that chance, mm -hmm. you know, or you're going to have to leave. You know what I mean? Once, but... I would never throw him out. I would probably say, you're going to have to leave. And then I would try and, you know, set up something for him where at least he wasn't homeless. I, I don't think that's the answer, but I was financially able to do that. I didn't have to do that very often, but I mean, I, I never really did except the last time. And he said, I'm going to get help. So 
I think you have to always lovingly put it back on that person, um, you know, not yelling at them or not demeaning them, but saying your behavior, every behavior has a benefit or a consequence. Your behavior is leading to consequences that we cannot as a family live with. We have younger siblings. It's become unmanageable. You need to make a choice. What are you going to do? And put it back on them. And part of their healing process I, I've seen is when you put it back on them and they make that choice, well, I'm going to go, I don't want to live like this. I'm going to, I want to go here or I'm going to go to this place or I'm going to go into sober living. That helps them build their own self-esteem because again, you remember their brain isn't functioning correctly. They're not making good choices. They're not getting the normal rewards. Like when you do something good and I, congratulations or I hug you that's a normal euphoric mm -hmm. feeling they, they don't get that you know I mean it's messed up up there you know in their four midbrain and forebrain so but them making each step helps that grow and get a little better so I, I do think you have to continually put it back on them in a loving way if I were to scream and holler and get out of here that that just demeans them and it just puts them that's not the answer that's not the answer um, it is very difficult though for families especially when they're younger and their brains are so fired up and they're yelling and screaming and you know it's easy to say well you know get out then you know but when they're younger it's very difficult for families very and i would again try to let the anger anger has to go out the window you can't get reason with anyone when there's anger try and hope for a moment of clarity you know um i remember the interventionist saying to me the disease has its schedule and it's going to keep, it's going to go its way. Hmm. We can do what we can. We can keep putting him back on the right track. We can do that in the best way possible. But the disease will, will have its course until he can, you know, f keep fighting it and maybe win over it. You know, but again, it, it, it takes a lot of gratefulness and humbleness. And I think to myself, you talk about families that have an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old. Well, if they've been using since they were 14, we don't have much maturity there, right? I know, don't know of any normal 18-year-olds that are humble. Okay, <laughs> yeah. they got this. Yeah. I'm going to do it. I don't need to listen to your... I don't have you know, a problem. Right. And, and again, gratefulness is not something that we teach in this world. You know what I mean? Mm. Grateful for today. Grateful for what I have. There's always somebody that has it worse, somebody that has it better. But... That's a big problem because you need that humbleness. You need to do what you need to do. And they're not really mature enough to, you know, handle. And a lot of things, I think in rehabs, one of the biggest problems with these younger kids is the mere fact that they started escaping and self-medicating with substances at an early age. We got all that damage. Mm -hmm. We don't have a brain that was developed correctly. And now they're 19 and you're telling them, all right, you're going to go to this rehab. You know what I mean? And they're like, what? Are, you know, they're they're gonna, but they're they can't. They have all that damage, and they haven't matured. With maturation comes humility, comes gratefulness. You know, like I said, people used to say, Rosie, pray that Tommy gets to thirty because your brain would eventually have some maturing there, anyways. You know what I mean? But these kids are exposed to such high level of these analogs, does so much damage. So much damage. And then we're playing catch up. You get them in rehab and you're trying and there's never enough time and the damage. And, and then we get into that cycle. So we've, the district we're in, there's a lot of marijuana use. And mm -hmm. I know we've talked about it a lot. And a lot of parents are like, it's just pot. What do you both think about that? Well, what would you say to that parent who's either 
it's just pot or I found out my 16-year-old is using pot. Okay, so I will tell. Now, again, this would have been like 2018. So it's just pot. Okay, so I was out at the sober house. And one of the guys wanted to show me this article. And it was from a paper from Youngstown. And it was a front page picture of a dealer that had this table. And he had gotten arrested. And it was actually this young man's dealer. And on the table, he had a bag of pot. He had a scale. There was some white powdery substance, which was fentanyl, right? Okay. And then he had some cocaine. But he had that bag of pot sitting right there, right? Now, he, being the the big dealer, he had all the garb on, so he's not going to breathe any of that in because he needs this. He says this is his money, okay? So I, I, he showed me this picture, and, and I, it really stuck in my mind. And, you know, I used to say to my kids, you know, I don't care what they say. You don't know what you're smoking. You know, you really don't. And, again, it's a mind-altering substance, and your brain is still healing. So, you know, let's not get involved with something that we can't control, right? So I, I had a talk that I did at the high school shortly after that. And I, and I said to the kids, I said, so I'm going to tell you this picture. Now I have a question for you. Do you think when that man in the garb was weighing out his pot bags, okay, do you think he wiped it all down and he made sure that fentanyl wasn't anywhere around? No, of course not. Does he really care about you? No. He wants to get you addicted more so because then you're my income. Right. So I said, so now, okay, so he, he doesn't wipe, you know, he doesn't wipe it down. He may even let some of it get on there. Right. But it's just pot. Right. Okay. So now guys, let's talk about a Friday night and you want to relax and you want to take it to the next level. Right. So instead of smoking a joint that possibly could have had some fentanyl on it that could screw up your life for a long damn time. Let's say Rosie comes and picks you up on a bus. We all get in this bus because we want to take it up a notch, because we just won the state championship, or we're all that, because we're all that, right? We're all that, because we, our parents tell us we're all that. So I'm going to take you down to downtown Cleveland, and I'm going to park that bus on the side of a six-lane highway, and I'm going to say, get out and run across. This, run across. Who makes it, makes it. Who doesn't, doesn't. We're going to take it up a notch. Is that not what you're doing when you're smoking a joint that you don't know where it came from and if it has something on it you're taking that chance is it worth it maybe look at why you're taking that chance why isn't life good enough why do we have to take it up a notch and they all just got very quiet but i, I really i do worry about that I, because pot doesn't come from you know okay granted now you know there's medicinal grade and you know what that is but the other stuff come on that person that's making it is making money, and he's got to get those kids involved. The sooner he can get them addicted, the sooner they're going to want the bigger stuff, the sooner he's going to make more money. Yeah, and even play out the medicinal card, though, like in going back to the full legalization of, right. you know, I I mean, those are young minds. I don't yes. have any studies in front of me, and I don't really think they can do studies because I doubt they condone 13-year-olds smoking pot to you know, qualify for a longitudinal study on. Mm-hmm. But, but on, you don't know. It's, it's just a big question mark, and so you know, wouldn't we want to give our children the best opportunity to have their brain develop how it should without introducing any other substances? And mm-hmm. you know what, even maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't do anything to their brain. I don't know, but that's not a gamble I would want to take with my right. children's brains. Right. And right. it goes back even to the vaping. Yeah. That That right. is like, so I talked to a bunch of middle schoolers and they're like, you can tell, you know, and they, I said, and they're like, 
people that are like in high school who think they know more than the middle schoolers will say, well, Rosie, there's no nick there's no tar in it. It's not as bad as a cigarette. And I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, one of those little pods is equivalent to a pack of cigarettes. You take a jolt of that, that takes your little brain, especially if you're 13 years old and goes, whoa. And then they start, they kind of get that high feeling, kind of feels good, feels darn good when you're not the kid that everybody likes, or you're not the kid that's making the basketball team, or you're the one that gets picked on. So you can take a hit of that. And they don't even realize they're taking so many hits of that, they're then addicted. And it's a proven fact that with children, whether they start with any kind of addicted thing, it leads to the next. Yeah. You know, why get, and, and again, my question is, why do it at all? And that goes back to the human unconditional love. And so when parents say, well, how am I going to talk to your children, let them know that they matter and that they care enough about themselves that they're not going to put themselves in that situation and hurt themselves. Make it real. Tell them what really goes on, right? And let them grow as a human being. And and, and I say to these kids, okay, so you're going to tell me you're, you're good. You don't vape. You don't do anything. What about you know, the kid that sits next to you, oh, he vapes all the time, but he doesn't, you know, why don't you grow a little bit? And why don't you just say, hey, don't do that. You know what I mean? Care about that person. Maybe he just needs to be included once and grow those people, grow the individuals rather than letting everyone self-medicate. Yeah. Well, I think it's particularly hard too, you know, as a teenager, a young adult to, it kind of goes back to seeing into the future, you know, seeing our tomorrow or our next year or, our, you know, 10 years from now. Um, it kind of hit me, at one point we were talking about it. Um, I want, there's like a parallel between, um, I think it was talking about, you were talking about the families and the uh, impact that, you know, the drug use of, you know, the mother has in the child and, you know, how that trickles down. Um, and I wonder if, you know, psychologically, you know, we have some of those issues too, where you look at even money can make people, you know, destroy their family because, they don't take care of their kids or they they mm -hmm. neglect them. You know, how many songs are written about, you know, you get older and, oh, I spent my life, you know, playing music or trying to make money. And then you turn 60 and it's, oh, I never spent time with mm -hmm. my kids. And now you want to go spend time with your kids. And it's like, I heard right. that. I, what song is it? I just heard it the yeah, other day. Uh, old song. Yeah. With I just heard it. The, the cats in the cradle and the, the solar spoon. Yeah, right. And then finally he realizes it and he goes, he wants to go spend time with his kids. And the kid's like, ah, sorry, I got money to make. Yeah. But don't you, you know, think that is it, that's what the world is today, that the evilness of the world today is selfishness? That so many kids and so many people wouldn't be looking to self-medicate if they felt that inner love, that security, you know what I mean, to give them that know that they're worth it so they could take on, you know, Mother Teresa says that the breakdown of society is the breakdown of the family. We all search and we look elsewhere rather than looking inside. Everybody's too busy to take time with anyone. Everybody's too busy, not, you know what I mean? In, in, even in their own families. Do you know what I'm saying? That Like, why is that? Do you know what I mean? You know, then they want to come back after the, everybody's so busy and you know what I mean? And it takes time and it takes effort and you have to love yourself enough to be able to love others. And I think a lot of these kids, they're looking for acceptance in other ways you know you always read things about gangs why do kids go to gangs well it's because they want acceptance they want to feel a part of something yeah it's illegal behavior and it's terrible and everything like that but they're that human drive to be connected right yeah, so how do you i mean that's i guess the question is how do you how do you do that from even because even myself you know speaking from experience when i was 18 i 
I look in the world completely differently than I do now, which is a natural thing, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, even for someone like me that can see now that I'm in my mid 30s and I can go, oh, like there's so much more to this future in this world. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you get even those people that will eventually find that? But how do we get them to figure that out earlier? Because I always heard people talking about you know, when I was in high school, like, oh, the future's this, that, whatever. And, you know, you have its future ahead of you. And, um, you know, these are important things in life. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I got I, a football game to play this week. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I think it depends what is your priority? What is going to make you the person you're called to be? One of the things that Tommy said to Tommy was in eighth grade making his confirmation and he wanted part of what they had to do was service work, right? And some kids just do service work and you check it off, right? So his thing was there was a homeless shelter in downtown Cleveland for men that had psychiatric issues and probably addiction. They weren't, they weren't served very well, but there was a woman who ran David's ministry who came in and let the confirmation class like make cookies. Okay. So they make cookies and you know, Tommy really wanted to go down, you know, to this uh, shelter. So he went down and he came back. And he said, Mom, it was like life changing. And he said, I'd like to go back. And I said, well, honey, I said, you can't just go back. I said, let's talk to her and see what they need. And it was around Christmas time. And so she said, you know, Tommy, these guys really could use hooded sweatshirts. Okay. And he's like, okay. And she said, you know, and here's me. Okay, just hooded sweatshirts. And she said, well, Rose, you know, they have to be out on the streets. So you need that hood to cut the wind. I'm like, you know, and I'm like, okay. So we started back when Tommy was in eighth grade. We would have this drive, and it was hit, driven by him to get hooded sweatshirts, to get coats, and everything like that. And it was life changing for him. Do you know what I mean? And giving back to people. Okay. So he continued, and then you know, as his uh, brother made his confirmation. He even went with me to a place in Portage County, you know, and so Tommy was always very involved in giving back and he had that sense of it. Right. And so then a month before he died, we were going to the, uh, Miller house in Portage County. It's for homeless families. And I had food and donations and he goes, can you know, mom, can I go with you? I said, Oh, sure. You know, so he was coming with me and we were talking and he said, mom, you have to remember to always help people. And I said, Tommy, I know. I said, you know, back when you were in eighth grade, you really spurred us on, and I've continued to do stuff. And I said, I'm very grateful for that, you know, because he said, Mom, and he grabbed my arm, and he said, you have to help the people that the world doesn't understand, which, again, why I think I do so much with the addictive recovery community. Um, but then he said to me, Mom, you really got to work with Dino. That's his younger brother and do these things because that's what's going to make him the man he's called to be. That is huge. That is going to make him the man that he's called to be. And I'm very grateful. Both of my children are very giving and do a lot of service work and things like that. You do the service work, not because you want to say, look what I did. And I know a lot of kids have to get into, you know, honor society and stuff and they'll call me and, you know, they'll want to do stuff and I'll, you know, I'll take anybody's help. But those that do it, it changes them. And that is what we need as a society to let them realize. So if you were taught that earlier on, that everybody doesn't live in a nice house, you know, in Aurora and have all this, that there are people that are suffering and your worth is based on how well you care for your brother, how far that would go. They would love themselves even more. I took a group to the homeless shelter the one day I was to put up a Christmas tree and these were high school seniors. 
and there were two little girls, you know, it was families. So the guys built the tree, the football players, and the two girls were helping me. And um, these two little girls, they were sisters. There were one was five and one was three, and they wanted to help with the ornaments on the tree. So, you know, again, this was a group that was doing service work, you know, and I never know, is it gonna touch them, you know, or whatever. And so the one little girl who was three didn't have shoes on. Well, these ornaments, you know, you're taking them out of the box and there's little things that could step in your foot. And so the one girl, little thing said, honey, you need to get your shoes on if you're gonna help because you're gonna step on something and I want you to get hurt. And her sister, who was a couple years older, looked at her and said, we only have one pair of shoes. I have them on today. So that girl picked up that little girl and for two hours she held her and let her put on ornaments on the tree and everything. I thought, oh, I can imagine this ride home, you know, you know. So we get in the car and I said, you know, I, I can't thank you enough for, for, for doing that. And I said, really, you went over and beyond. And I said, it meant so much to that little girl, you know, and, and she looked at me and she said, when can I go again? You know, she didn't have to do that. And that girl continued to give back. I think that we have to develop our souls so that we then can live good people. I don't care, and I tell my children, I tell everyone, I don't care if you're a counselor, I don't care if you run podcasts, I don't care if you work out, I don't care what you do. What will define you, and what will make you the best counselor, nurse practitioner, person in life, is your soul. And that's what defines you, period, period. Because to, when you die, I don't think God's going to say, what did you, you know, he's going to, how many people did you love? How many people did you try and help? And I can't tell you what it builds in yourself when you do that. You get so much back more. I mean, anytime I take anybody to the sober houses or if we go, I, I do things for the battered women's shelter or if I go to the homeless shelter, when you leave there, they're like changed. And why are they changed? They're changed because they stop living their life stop thinking about me and started thinking about them. And when you give, you receive back so much more. And so if we're going to get children to that level to make better decisions and you have to go back to that. And I, I do believe caring about others, you know, whether it's service work or whatever it is, we all need to do that. We all need to care about each other. I think though, it's almost like there's, two different parts, even though addiction is one big thing, and you're all in rehab together, there is a, almost like people like Tommy, who grew up in a loving house, who has all the support, who has that understanding, but then there's so many people that are so broken from the time they're born because of the environment that they're in. Mm -hmm. So how do we fix those people? Because that's a vast at well, least maybe, and maybe it's just because that's mostly the population that I see that right. it's almost like they don't have a chance from the time they're born. Right. And so and how it, do, what do we do for them it, it is through rehab? It is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. And you could sit back and you could say, I didn't change anything. You know, you did this. You can't do that. If every person, like I often think if every mother that lost a child would adopt a sober house and do what I do how different the outcome mm -hmm. would be. Not that I'm anything great, but I'm just saying if, if, if they could do that, if they right. could see, you're not gonna change all those people. And you can either curse the darkness or be the light. I truly believe that every person has that opportunity. And it's up to me to find my opportunity and to do the best I can 
for me, not to judge others. Everybody's capabilities and what they can do are different. Some people don't have the funds. Some people don't. It doesn't matter. I'm going to do the best that I can. And your kindness to those people in the hospital or whatever is huge, right? And I do say with rehab and with that sober living, yeah, Tommy came from a great family and a lot of love, but, but towards the end of his addiction, many people did not understand. And he was, co he was very isolated. So those men, whether he met him in rehab or his roommates that I'm still friends with that were at the sober house with him before he passed, were pivotal, mm -hmm. pivotal to keeping him on that track whether Tommy had come from a great background, just as much as he was pivotal to the to one of them who maybe didn't have all those blessings. Right. Because when you're all stripped of everything you have right. and all you have is yourself and your soul, it's amazing what good you can be for each other. Mm -hmm. So you have to hope and pray that you can get them. And sometimes those who don't have a lot do better in rehab because they have that humility. It's hard for people that were professionals or, you know, had had a successful life and lost it all. They keep thinking they're, they're that they don't want to humble themselves. Mm -hmm. They want the fast track. I can do this because it's so embarrassing that they're in that situation. You know, I don't know. There is a lot of sadness. There is. And some days, like, you know, you talk to people in the field, you know, it's compassion overload. Sometimes you have to pull yourself back and you can't get so down you have to like tell okay today's a new day and do the best that i can and at the end of the day just like all of us you give it back to god and you you ask for strength for the next day because that's all we can do it goes back to that living each day at a you know one one at a time but i, I really do i think to myself if if everyone everyone stopped judging and just did a little bit in their own little circle how much different the outcomes would be and how much better the world would be well you said too you know having raising your kids to kind of understand you know what it means to help other people and um you know we've talked about it where we're s especially our kids now are so isolated mm. in the united states from the entire world mm -hmm. you know so to your point like you know you look across the entire world of all these people that go through you know an infinite amount of and different things of suffering and, and suffering. trauma and everything. like yeah. we can't save them all but you know i think going back to if you everyone could just raise the bar just a little bit on how mm -hmm. much they humanize each other right mm -hmm. you know i think that that could it's, it's huge be a massive impact absolutely i like that component of service that you were talking about and i've said this before that yeah i'm not big on forcing people but it, man if, if everybody had to either be in the military or uh the peace corps peace corps or, mm -hmm. or, or something and serve for a year or two of their life like almost unanimously the people that I know in my life that have served have just a completely different outlook on, mm -hmm. on the way they treat people. And mm -hmm. I, I just, I'm kind of breaking down everything you were saying. And, you know, I was thinking about, uh, you know, trying to heal people and it turns out that they heal you in some respect. Right. And that, that's how Gulfport was for me. I, I went down and, and did Katrina relief aid, literally mm -hmm. just dropped out of college for three months. Mm -hmm. Didn't have a plan, you know, crazy mm -hmm. college kids picked mm -hmm. up my buddy and I'm like, let's go, man. We got to go. Like mm -hmm. these people need help. And I'm like, we're going to help them. And we went down there and we helped a ton of people. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. when we came back, I was like, holy smokes, those people helped me as much as I helped them mm -hmm. uh, to kind of get connected with humanity, to, to understand people, to love people. And, you know, I, I keep hearing these different questions and I always think of love as this umbrella and everything else is underneath it. But if you could just have that umbrella of love, it, it solves almost all problems and you know i i know you talk about your faith and i think about jesus hanging out with prostitutes and taxpayers mm -hmm. and 
and it's just I literally think of that like that the world looks down upon these people but they're the same people as we are Absolutely. like they've, they've just made some decisions that were, were different than ours and only or we're grace. born into different circumstances yeah. exactly. by the grace of God right. exactly my babies were brought home to a nice yeah. house in Aurora and not mm-hmm. but it goes back to the more that you're given the more you're expected to give like I am so blessed. So what good does it do me to sit at home with all my blessings and look around and say, not sure. you, "Yeah, mm-hmm. you can keep it all like this." You're not meant to do that. Mm-hmm. You're meant to give to others. You know, it, it, it just—it's that whole thought process. But as society, with fate, you know, the all the out there now, kids are. You're the bat. You're, you're great, great. You know, somebody, you know, even kids get in trouble. And instead of the parents saying, okay, well, what do we do? How can we be better? Who got, who, who said that? Let me call the school. Let me see. <laughs> you know, that teacher's probably wrong. You know, again, nobody's accountable. Nobody's accountable. And we're all human. We all make mistakes. And, you know, these, like the kids that get so frustrated, and I can see it in there, you know, no kid doesn't want to, you know, not do well in school or whatever. No kid wants to come home and say, Mom, I got to see, you know, what's the first thing? Well, do you didn't study? Or, uh, like, well, what's going on? Like, you know, do you, ha- or, you know, what could we do different and encouraging and trying to get them back on track? There's so many like learning disabilities, just all kinds of things in the, and fitting in and there's so much stress. And if we never take the time and never really help, you know, and those kids would really benefit from helping others you know what i'm saying and, and doing living the the faith like you know it's one thing to say it but walk the walk you know do what you're saying and the benefits are are huge i like you had said when you went to help and i think my kids who are, are in college you know they well now because COVID everything's different but offered these mission trips mm-hmm. to all yeah, these yeah. places around the world mm-hmm. but one of them was appalachia and i'm like that's where you need to go mm-hmm. because you need to see just a hop, skip, and a jump away from where mm-hmm. you're at, mm-hmm. where there is a poverty like you cannot imagine. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes you humble. It makes you grateful for what you have. Right. And I think, Changes you know, just you. from what I see, you know, all the years of working in an urban setting, like you are so grateful every that that is not the card you were dealt mm-hmm. because it, it in a blink of an eye mm-hmm. could be you number you know mm-hmm. and just to be humble enough to be so grateful for what you have and right. i think that's missing with a lot of people and i Not, think we think we can control everything like you know i think some people look at me and say well you lost your son you know you it, it, that's a huge loss it's a huge hole in my heart right but I don't, I can't waste time on that. Like Tommy's life had such a purpose and I'm blessed to be his mom, right? And his spirit and his love of others and everything like that, I keep Tommy alive by living my life the way I should. Like mm-hmm. I know that he's proud of me mm-hmm. and I know so many suffer and he and, and he didn't suffer in vain, you know? Right. And I think we have a tendency to feel sorry for ourselves. I meet so many families, so much anger when they've lost someone to addiction or whatever. And anger only hurts yourself. Like, you know, it's not, you can't bring them back. It was, it was his course or her course in life. And, you know, it, you can't sit there and just be mad like but I, I see so much anger and why 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 well you know clearly you've got to you know you're not in charge you know there is a greater power that's in charge and you got to keep doing what you can do and 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 find peace in that way so many people there's 
you know, sometimes I look at people that are in sober houses and they have some peace sometimes that I don't see in my workplace. Do you know what I mean? Because peace my, and inner, inner peace. Right. In like how yeah. they look at themselves. Like right. somebody who's really gone through and mm-hmm. we said like bought into it mm-hmm. and really has done the work. Right. And it's, it's incredible sometimes the things that come out of their mouths. You're like, Wow. Right. And like trying to help other people. Yeah. And, you know, you, you like even you, you and I, when we walk out of there, you, you think like they treat you like you're the greatest thing that ever happened. And they're so grateful. And what they give you is that unconditional love back three times. Right. You know, and that gives and you, learn something every time. Right. Because you're blown away by what someone right, says. Or, right. Right. And then you have strength to go on with your life, you know, but and, and, and I know, you know, sometimes I think and I look back and, and I look at everybody living in it and I think oh my god you're all so crazy you know what I mean like you're missing the boat here you're missing you know but it, it, again that's what giving of yourself does it trains your soul it makes you humble and it gives you a greater gift than what you give those people that you serve I think those two words humility and anger it's really hard to be angry mm-hmm. when you're humble mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, you'd see people that are humble and they're like you said they're happy. They're happier because mm-hmm. they, you know, that outlook on life is, you know, what do I have to be angry at? Like I, mm-hmm. I have, I have the things that I need. Like you know, I'm, I'm at where I'm at or whatever it is. Uh, you know, and they have that humility, and you know, it kind of brings me back to that kind of system that, you know, the construct that normal people, normal quote unquote normal people, live by, mm-hmm. and they're so angered by everything all the time. It's you know, I'm stuck in traffic or this that, and they mm-hmm. you get so consumed with what you're angry about, you know, whether it be, you know, ideological differences or, mm-hmm. you know, anything like that. And, and it, you touched on it too. You said, you know, um, you know, students with like learning disabilities, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I think there is a lot of, you know, different chemical makeups and different things out there. But I think some of the things that we do in schools is maybe that, maybe that kid just doesn't have a, you know, a learning disability or whatever you want to call it. Maybe you're just not teaching them right. Right. We all you, learn differently. We're all different. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes mm-hmm. back to that. We're all different. Cre- we're all humans, but we all kind of react to different things right. differently. And maybe we're just not approaching this person the correct way. Mm-hmm. And it's, we, we've lost the, the realization that we are very diverse, even if we right. look the exact same or anything else. Because we got to get it done. We got to get these test scores. We got to get because yeah. we got that's how our financial aid comes. And it's there like it is again, the there, money. Yeah, yeah it the is. Money. It, it's everything. <laughs> and we don't have time to stop and meet that person. And I'm not faulting anyone. It is what it is. Do you know what it, it's what our society has become, you know? And almost like you can't make mistakes now. You say something wrong and this mm-hmm. person's canceled or this right. person loses yeah. everything they have because they made a stupid decision 20 years ago. Well, mm-hmm. how many stupid things did we do 20 years ago? Mm-hmm. You know? And it goes back that, to that, that judge it. You know, everybody's re- everyone's always willing to judge someone. But um, one of the last texts that Tommy sent me, he loved Mother Teresa. And she had, you know, she's a phenomenal saint and has wonderful i love to do read her readings and stuff but the last text that he sent me was a quote of hers that said if you judge someone you have no time to love them and that is so true we're all so willing to judge everyone else because of our own insecurities and you know this happened because that person did this and it's their own fault and da, 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 you know and not to look at ourselves and that's what you were saying basically and what your patients get from you is that you're not judging them and they know you're mm-hmm. just loving them. Yeah, and where they're I at. Mean, I didn't walk in your shoes though. Like I, I don't know the life you lived, and you didn't walk in my shoes. Right. And I always kind of look at things like that. And 
going back to uh, canceling what you were saying, that stymies progress and growth absolutely in, in all fields. Because if you've, you know, this is outside of addiction, but it, all tied in back to addiction. But um, if you have an expert and and they're like not even going to explore something, or they're unwilling to go against the grain because they're worried about being canceled, something else that you could have discovered may never happen. Right. And, and hold on, let me bring this full circle. That goes back to, and you know I love this, convergency versus divergency, which is the paradigm of education, keeping people in a box to do it one one yeah. way because of money, because of mm-hmm. these standards that we have to hit. And so let me bring that full circle. I was going to ask you about uh, alternative treatments to, to addiction and how they're making some interesting headway with hallucinogenics. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's kind of fat. I know I, I just, boom, just touched on a lot of things there and playing some mm-hmm. 3d chess, I mm-hmm. guess. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I, you know, the the ketamine with PTSD mm-hmm. and soldiers, mm-hmm. uh, Johns Hopkins came out with that recent study about, uh, psilocybin, the mushrooms yeah. being four times more effective for depression than the SSRIs, uh, MDMA for PTSD, which has made it through, I think the third phase of uh, the FDA, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, different compounds that have neuroplastic abilities, such as ayahuasca or mm-hmm. ibogaine or mm-hmm. uh, and, and dimethyltryptamine, DMT. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how much you know about those I things. I don't know and, a lot about it, but I mean, I, again, there's so much research, yeah. so much going on. We just, you know, the sky's the limit in finding out and knowing what can be done. Um, but I do know that it is a brain disease, right? Yep. So, so if we can find something that can help yeah. with that, I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? The disease likes to, to control them and make them abuse things and everything like that. But if it's done in the right way and it can get someone to long-term recovery, then why wouldn't we try, you know? Yeah, and that's that's where I'm at with that. Like, I keep a very open mind, and that's kind of why I was like, ah, I better watch what I'm saying. But I'm mm-hmm. kind of pro drug in in that you know in what can control, you know right. you could consider a lot of things drugs. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm I'm just huge on kind of what's that that next level. And so mm-hmm. if we're worried about if we're being put in a box from a young age, we might never be able to think like that. If we always have to worry about being canceled or doxed, we might never think like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that in and of itself could perpetuate that progress mm-hmm. and. You might have been able to help addiction. You might have been able to help. I, I still. Pull, I'm sorry. To no, no, no. Go ahead. I, 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 I know what you're saying with the new medication and all that stuff. I still believe that to really treat addiction, like even with the Suboxone, yeah. you know, um, weaning them off or whatever, that we don't want to replace something for the other. Yeah. Um, but we do need that brain to heal. Yeah. And that's why every component is so important. The rehab, yep. the sober living, the connection, the counselors, all that to get the best outcome. There is no one. No, if you do this, yep. you're going to get it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Tommy would never go on Suboxone because he's like, Mom, I'm going to end up addicted to that. You know what I mean? Because he thought he could do it a better way. But sure. his brain was so damaged that, you know, we don't, you know, I understood why, because I had known so many people mm-hmm. that had been on Suboxone, then they tried to get off it, then they overdosed and died, you know. Um, but I think it is definitely a combined effort for, for getting that person yeah. to recovery. We have to be open to whatever and however we can get them there. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's a complete picture, and there's there's nothing magic. There's no one step. No. And like mm-hmm. you said, it's a continued process that's that's healing i mean mm-hmm. it, and it might be a lifetime process it of, is a lifetime process yeah of maybe maybe the brain chemistry has changed the neuroplasticity mm-hmm. has happened the pleasure centers aren't where they are but 
all these other things could have happened. These experiences, these, mm-hmm. like you said, having to maybe prostitute yourself for those and those those, those never go away. Right. Mm-mm. And so, right. yeah, it is that complete picture of, right. of wholeness. And, and Right. And sometimes I think, and I thought this with Tommy, like I thought, oh, he's going to go to rehab. We're going to fix this. It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand that. So the one, you know, and I, when I'm in the rehabs and I, hopefully the families will be able to come back soon. But when I talk to them, I say, I wish I could tell you that it's going to go away, mm-hmm. but we need to look at it realistically. And it is a medical condition that has to be managed. We don't have to fight it. We can work through it. We can get back. We can get to an, uh, managing it, and be positive in that response. You know, it's not going to go just like any other medical condition. It doesn't go away. It has to be managed. If you choose not to do what you need to do to maintain your hypertension, you're going to have a heart attack and you're going to die. Yeah. You know, but it's. I, I think again, my hypertension does not compare to someone who has addiction and the stigma that they face, and they don't get the support and the love. And it, it beats down on their self-esteem. And then how am I supposed to get them to love themselves so they're going to work on this? You know what I mean? And that's the fault of society. Well, and working through all those layers of trauma yeah. mm-hmm. from the time some of people, from the time they're children, mm-hmm. and they've never processed being sexually abused when they were small or mm-hmm. physically abused, and then layering on all yep. those other things, like that is painful long-term therapy work on top of trying to do the recovery work Mm -hmm. like it's not a simple it's it isn't deep for years so you see why it's so easy just to go back and be like right i can't do this today i just don't want to feel this right because it's hard and when when people in society hear those stories it's like well that but that person's life is no different than the person who just got diagnosed with COVID and is in ICU. They both matter. Who are you to say that person doesn't deserve another chance? You know what I mean? Or no, I might not be able to fix that person, or you might not be able to fix that person that has had all this trauma, but you can do the best you can with today. And that's all that you can do. And you never know if your little piece of the puzzle might be enough to get them another month, might get them enough to leave another year. You know, they might fall down again because that's a tremendous burden. We can't erase the past, but we can do our best with that moment. And we can't get caught up in overwhelmingness and you know I look at these guys and I'm so proud of them you know and I I, sometimes they'll tell me their stories and I'll get in my car and I'll cry on the way home and I cry for that person that had to suffer that but then I remember that's yesterday and keep praying today or when they lose somebody from the sober house it just devastates them you know I just was with lunch you know and, and yes you know that was his journey we did the best we can it's not your fault it's not his fault it is what is you know what I mean well I think you've convinced me at least that I think the the first step is getting rid of that stigma yes um I think and, and to kind of tie it into you guys are talking about you know the canceling and the experts and you know it we need to be able to be wrong mm-hmm. you know being an that's I that's I think you said Tony how it stymies things where these experts they they're so afraid of you know professors or scientists or whatever are so afraid of being wrong mm-hmm. that they never explore mm-hmm. and I think it kind of comes full circle that, you know, as humans or, you know, somebody that's looking for help or anything else, like you have to be able to be received and be wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's, you can be wrong, but if everyone hates you for it, then it's not going to do you any good. So that's, you know, but we need to allow people to, Mm -hmm. to be wrong, to make mistakes and to go, okay, let's try it again. Right. Meeting them right where they're at. Right. 
in every aspect of life. You have to meet people where they're at. If I'm going to judge you and everything like that, I'm not going to make any headway, you know. That's what you do when you see your patients. It's huge. I mean, you know, I've met so many people in recovery and everything like that, and those that have that ability, it's a gift. It mm -hmm. is truly a gift. And, you know, you don't realize what you're giving, but the that's, that's like priceless to give them hope. Do you know what I mean? That That's just awesome. We need more of that. And I think how they're, if it's the first time they're going in for help, mm -hmm. how you treat them and what they feel on that first time. Um, I know, you know, I don't know if you guys know that I was um, a pediatric sexual assault nurse. So if someone comes in and it, we do the rape kit mm -hmm. and I tr truly believe that how you treat that person Mm -hmm. in that family, in that, you know, golden hour mm -hmm. of that you're the first person that mm -hmm. it has that impact with them mm -hmm. will greatly impact their journey after that trauma mm -hmm. and how you're treated and how they can look at that, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And right. I think the same for, you know, if you go in and right away someone is treating you with respect mm -hmm. and not judging you, mm -hmm. It's and huge. showing you love is huge, mm -hmm. you know, because you're not going to be willing to come back if you're treated like crap the first time and you're judged and, and you you're it's down. seen as your fault and it's, you know, right. you shut down and you think, well, I tried, but right. what good is that going to do me? And if there is that, like, I remember Tommy was in a rehab, I'm not going to say the name, but they were like very like at him like at the group like there's a a relapse in every one of you not necessarily a recovery like a like a coming and Tommy was like what are you talking about like respect I respect you respect me and and I saw he just shut down Shuts he didn't down. listen mm -hmm. didn't listen and you know what again that and then that's another time we go and we don't really make headway do you know what I'm saying and you keep adding those up you get real tired and mm -hmm. how, you know, to resurrect that self-esteem and to believe in yourself and to know you're loved, how much different it would have been if it, at the beginning we would have done that. Or be willing to put yourself out there right. again, mm -hmm. you know, because what if the next guy you meet is going to be just like that one at the last, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And you're Versus struggling for your life and you're being treated like, you, you know, they just need the love and the support and to realize that it is a disease and not a moral failing. You love each other a little more. That's right. <laughs> well, we're we're at two and a half hours. Oh wow! <laughs> I told I you. I, I guess like I did okay. Minutes. Yeah, you did great. Is there anything particular that you have going on, or any projects, or anything that people can you know help out with, or anything that you'd like to get um, out there? To uh, well, a lot of my stuff I just do myself, um, but I am on the board for Hope Town recovery which is recovery housing in portage housing or in portage county and um it's going to be for men and women and they're on facebook if anybody would like to go on there um right now we're getting donations and stuff to be able to furnish the apartments um but they're going to have lots of of opportunities for people that are in recovery to come there and work with job and family services and peer support and have a lot of good services to make their recovery possible that's all we can hope for but i'm i'm excited about that because there really wasn't a place like this in portage county um and other than that prayers uh, because it, it and, and and all of us you know can do something you know i i used to think well, what can i do after tommy died and i decided i gotta do something and you know i 
went back to the house and I put steps on, you know, I paid for steps and I paid for someone to go for their month and, but it wasn't enough. And I, that's how what I do now has grown from that. It wasn't enough. And, and I, you know, I just kept listening to my heart. And I think if everyone would listen to their heart, what this world would be such a better place. Maybe you can't help me, but maybe you can help somebody else or you can do something for someone at a homeless shelter or do something. But that's what I would ask to, to look at your heart and to try and love somebody else and make this world a better place. Because if everyone did that, it wouldn't be such an enormous battle for so many. I don't think anybody can disagree with that. Lisa, <laughs> any, any closing words? No? No. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank, thank, you. thank you guys so much.